0: Everything F1, driven by fans for the fans.
1: And it's lights out and away we go!
2: As Verstappen goes into turn one and goes past the
3: Mercedes! Oh! And Hamilton has gone from second in the race. Try again this time on the inside
2: and comes to the touch! Verstappen is out of the race and that's a big crash! Ocon wins the Hungarian Grand Prix!
1: Russell is still on provisional pole! Hello and welcome to the 2022 season review episode of the Everything F1 podcast. My name is Sean and joining me tonight is Coops. Hey, Coops. Hello. How are you? I am very well. Looking forward to to getting stuck into this one. We also have Sophia. How are you, Sophia?
0: Hi. How are you again?
1: (laughs) Very well, thanks. And we have a special guest joining us tonight. We have Sean Kelly, who is the go-to stats man for Formula
3: One. Hi, Sean. How are you? I am very good or feel, feeling slightly insecure to be joined by another Sean K. Tonight <laughs> could get... A little bit confusing. Whereas, I mean, you sound like a real Irishman as opposed to a plastic one like I am. (laughs) Well, for those
1: of our listeners who might not have have heard your SK name before, tell us a bit more about yourself, who you are, and what you do in the world of Formula One.
3: Well, I'm basically the go to guy for facts and figures. I mean, all the broadcasters use me, Formula One uses me, Sky Sports use me. I've been doing it nearly 20 years. Bahrain 2023 will be 20 years since (coughs) I started, and still, still have managed to avoid getting a real job somehow i'm still waiting for them to come around and arrest me to be honest and now in recent years they realize if we hand in the microphone we could cut out the middleman just have him freestyle all this nonsense to our guests so now more often than not i'm at the racetrack posting in increasingly absurd places like on a yacht in monaco or on the top of a tower in abu dhabi so uh, you know it gets me out of the house
1: well I, I think i speak for everyone on the panel when i say that sounds like an absolute dream job <laughs> yes yeah.
3: and you can add me to that i also agree it is a dream job i'm still convinced. <laughs> I must be breaking the law. I must be <laughs> at some point. Like the tax this authority is going to say, "No, sorry, this is not real." I'm sorry, you've got to you've got to go and find something real to do. But uh, yeah, there's been uh, a
1: glitch in the matrix for twenty years.
3: definitely that- I'm definitely one of those people who fell through the cracks or, or or failed upwards. Is probably the best phrase, isn't it? That's a good way. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, we're very looking forward to having a hearing more from you throughout the throughout the episodes. It's a great one for you to join us on. Obviously, we are going to review the 2022 season. First of all, just a quick reminder, we are, of course, Everything F1. You can find us on all socials at Join EF1, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can visit our website, www.everythingf1.com. Wherever you are listening to the podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast as well. So you get the new episodes in your earlobes whenever they are available. Now then, before we get into the big season review, there has been a bit of news. Formula One might be technically over, but the silly season is certainly not, and I didn't think I'd be saying that in December, because it usually ends in August, but I think the first big piece of news that we really have to talk about is, despite all of their claims that it wasn't happening, it was completely untrue, Mattia Bonato has stepped down from his role as team principal in Ferrari, leaving Marinello after 28 years, four of which were as team principal, so... Let's jump straight into it. Coops, what are your thoughts on Minato? Did you see this coming? Did you believe them when they said they weren't going to do it? Or what, do you think this is the right move for Ferrari?
4: Uh, I believe there was no smoke without fire. As we all know in Formula One, the rumours generally are maybe not 100% accurate, but there's usually some truth in the majority of them. You know, we saw with the, the cost cap situation, it was... Red Bull, where the team? And I asked him out, where the team? That was the rumour. And then Red Bull came out and said no. And then they went, yeah, we did. You know, so, uh, you know, but Otto Lee, as it's not really a surprise. I think the, the strength of the rumours made it out that, you know, there was something going on. But I think it's more... I, I'm not 100% sure whether it's the right thing. I think this is political. From what I've read when I was writing the notes and stuff and checking up some stuff, it was... Bonotto just did not get on with the CEO of Ferrari, which is I think it's his name's John Elkin. So that basically was the nail in the coffin. If you don't if your big boss doesn't like you, he's gonna get shot of. And he inherited Benotto. Benotto was was brought on from is it Marcioni, I think his name was. I can't remember his real name. Mm. Yeah, and then he passed away and then John Elkin took over the role. He's the chairman, I think, and it's Bigner, which is the the CEO. Anyway, the two head honchos basically did not like Bonotto. They did they didn't get on. It was like oil and water is what I've kind of seen described. Uh, and uh, you know, Matthew Ponotto's he's resigned rather than be sacked. But I think Yeah, you, you said was... earlier
1: he jumped before he was pushed, kind of thing.
4: Yes, he knew it was coming. He didn't get the support from the bigger, the bigger folk up there. They had some reservations about his style of management and the way he worked, excuse me, within the team. So yeah, whether it's right. It probably isn't the right thing because we're not surprised when Ferrari do it because <laughs> <laughs> there's a graveyard with quite a few uh, team principals, you know, in it. So yeah, it, it's we'll see. It depends who they bring in and whether it's the right thing or not, I think. For
1: sure. And touching on that, Sophia, obviously all the rumors at the moment are that Fred Vasseur from Alpha South is going to be taking that role. Now that's obviously completely unconfirmed. Although last time there was unconfirmed rumors the day before we recorded the podcast was about Nico Hülkenberg, and we were completely right about that. So let's work off the assumption for now anyway, that it is going to be Fred Vasser. Is that a bit of a weird, at least rumor, whether it's going to be him or not?
0: I, I mean, I guess with obviously the connection with the Ferrari engines, maybe I guess that's where it's coming from. I feel like it's a little bit too far out because then that leaves another team to look for a team principal and it's a trickle-down effect. Are they going to approach another person from another team? So I feel like it's quite weird. But then, I, again, silly season. I've been seeing weird, weird news articles and like rumor mill that apparently Christian Horner was approached last season about team principal Ferrari. Like, again... I don't know what's going on, but there's also another team principal as well. Like silly season is silly season. I'm not really like believing in a lot of it until I actually see Sky recording on it. But with he leaving, I feel like obviously he is the face of the decisions and calls that have been made. And on this podcast and many others, we've said like, it's a running joke how bad Ferrari strategy calls have been. And because he is the face uh, behind those calls technically, He was the first one to be kind of gone. It wouldn't surprise me if some other engineers decide to go as well. I wouldn't see them cleaning up shop, but I can see them making some new changes on who's going to be on the pit wall for the new season.
1: So, Sean, then, bringing that to you, I'm looking here at a couple of stats, which I wouldn't be surprised if you actually put together about Ferrari's last five team principles. So, the team being the fifth to be sacked in 30 years, which on paper doesn't sound like a lot. I think McLaren have gone through more than that. The only other team who haven't gone through more than that is Red Bull because Christian Horner is ageless and they haven't been around that long. But, but Benotto, his record... On paper, at least, does not look great. Like Four years, zero titles, only seven wins in 61 races. Arriva Vene had 14 wins in 81 races. Mattiacci had nothing. And obviously, the last big dog was Stefano Domenicali, who had one title and 20 wins in 115 races, and then John Todd and everything.
3: What are your thoughts on, on the big change of Ferrari? <laughs> well, as Jamie there mentioned, it's uh, politics of Ferrari. I mean, they go together you know like fine wine and a fine dinner don't they i mean it's just with with ferrari comes politics there's no surprise to me that we would have that situation i do think that the decision the fact that they're parting company now i think is detrimental more to ferrari than it is to bonotto if if when looked at it, when imbued in its proper context ferrari had the comeback season of the year in 2022 they've mm-hmm. winless the last two years this year They contended early on for the world championship. If the season had happened the opposite way round, everybody would have said, wow, Ferrari really came on strong there at the end. Unfortunately for them, they jumped out to this early lead and then Red Bull figured out how to get around the racetrack Mm -hmm. and and do, do all the laps in a race. And they demonstrably had the better race car, even though Ferrari were quicker over a single lap. It should not be lost. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that after two winless seasons. Ferrari this year finally, you know, got back in the win column. They had more, they, they tied the most pole positions they've ever had in a grand Prix season, which was a wow. little, a little used fact, which, you know, I, I injected some jeopardy cause I was actually hosting the Ferrari guests in Abu Dhabi and I said, well, okay, you do not qualifying. Cause it could be a new Ferrari team record for most poles in the season. I think they were one short of tying their front most front rows in the season. This is all Schumacher era records. Yes. Red bull was stronger in race pace. Yes. Some of the Ferrari strategy decisions were baffling, and yes, they did have reliability at just reliability problems at just the wrong moments when you know Leclerc would be leading the race. And of course, you know Leclerc binned it all on his own at Paul Ricard. You can't blame mm. Benotto for that one. So it was it was a, it was a combined team failure. But I mean, with Benotto trying to in, in, introduce this uh, culture of you know n- no blame game, I and mean, Ferrari have mm. always been the world champions of the blame game. The idea that he would try and bring in this culture that, that Total Wolf has done at Mercedes, which has been so successful, of okay guys, let's be accountable, let's not worry that you know by admitting we made a mistake, it's going to risk our jobs. That that was a positive thing, and, and I think if Benotto felt like he was being marginalised, that is that reflects very badly on Ferrari and whoever mm. they appoint to put in that position. They're gonna it's good, it's a key appointment because if they get it wrong everybody's going to realise, you know, Benazzo was obviously doing a much better job than you, we all thought he was because you've all fallen apart without him. Oh, if they, if they made, if made, this change had come at the end of 2021 and he'd resigned after two winless seasons, we could have all gone, yeah, well, kind of right it was on the wall, wasn't it? To come back from that, sixth in the World Championship in 2020, all the way up to being the runners-up this year, I know it wasn't the championship, but that's still progress, you know, they're, they're, they're in good shape. And yeah, it's, like you mentioned, you know, from the, from the time... Cesari Friorio got sacked. And then John Tote came in right at the ship and everything, Dominicali came in. And then we had that merry-go-round, Mattiacci and Riva Bene. Hey. Mattiacci, incidentally, I thought did a much better job than his record suggests because he actually was turning the ship round, but then sort of got elbowed aside before the success started from mm. that. So Mattiacci's record is, is slightly falsely portrayed. And, and it might well be with Bonotto. You know, we might see it like, Maybe Ferrari starts strongly again next season, and everybody says, "Ah, oh, they've changed the team principle. Everything's great." And maybe the wheels come off it—not literally, well, maybe literally, actually—and before you know it, you know, they're all pointing fingers at each other again. So it's—it's, uh, it's, in a way, it's just another wonderful day in the history of Scuderia Ferrari, who we all love because of the—you know, the, it's—it's just—it's not just about racing. There's politics. There's intrigue. You know, it's—it's, it's, yeah, it's—it's it's part of what Ferrari is. It's never boring anyway, is it? <laughs> no, no. It was, uh, rain or shine, Ferrari are never dull. Even no. if they're not winning races, there's usually something going on that makes no sense whatsoever and makes it highly entertaining. It's interesting you said there, obviously, like I'm taking it on paper. and We
1: look back in the history books because we won't really remember what goes on in 10 years' time, but we remember that in 2020, they were sixth. In 2022, they were second. Much better. Lots of polls, lots of wins, lots of podiums. Carlos Sainz got his first win of the of his career in a Ferrari. That's a great news story. And we kind of touched on it last week in our podcast that the 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 message from Ferrari really quickly changed to okay, we've lost the championship, we've lost both championships, we might not get second in either championship. Let's remind everyone, this is a great season. We were nowhere two years ago and we straight up broke all the rules and signed some sketchy under the table deal to make everything quiet in 2019. So this is great, we're great, we're great. But yeah, I think you make a very good point that you know if they come out and win the first 10 races of next season, that will have nothing to do with whoever the team principal is because at the end of the day, he doesn't build the car, does he? Like Mattia Bonato has not built the 2023 car and whoever comes in, presumably in January, also will have virtually no input whatsoever in whatever turns wheels in Bahrain. So, yeah, it'd, it'd be interesting. To, what do you think? Do you think they'll replace him with Fred Vasseur or will they promote internally again?
3: Well, I, I, logically, I mean... I've always admired Fred Vasseur and, you know, everywhere he's gone, I've always thought, well, he's he's got a very good reputation as a team boss. Will he navigate the politics of Maranello? Well, that's a quite unique challenge and you never quite know. You know, even when Jean Tote came in, it was in the midst of another Ferrari slump. When he came in in mid-93, they just... In 1992, they didn't lead a lap. There's only been three seasons in history where Ferrari have not led a lap in an entire season. It was 1973, 92 and 2020. So in a sense, oh. Vasseur is coming in in a situation not that dissimilar, it's in a little better position, but they're coming out of a slump to where Jean Tote was. That that turned out rather well. So yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't question that appointment. But it is a shame that if Benotto's resigned, I can only assume that his because his position's undermined. Because there's yeah. no other reason for him to resign when you're on an upward slant such as this. And I would say in mitigation, oh, despite, fight. The, the the stand-up comedy routine that Ferrari seemed determined to offer to us at some races this season, ultimately, I don't think they would have beaten Red Bull anyway. Even if they'd maximized their opportunities, I still think Verstappen would have won that championship, and I still think Red Bull would have won the Constructors' Championship. It would have been a closer run thing, but ultimately, I think Red Bull were just the, the stronger outfit this year. Just Ferrari made it look like they were handing it to them.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's interesting you said there that, you know, it, but uh, Benotto kind of, as we said you know he jumped before he was pushed maybe it is that he's being undermined maybe the board think oh we need the fair back if that is the case, if Fred Vasseur comes in, I think he continues that kind of ethos of no fear in the company and like this isn't a you know a, a, a point and blame and everyone gets fired if they screw a bolt in wrong, which is what Ferrari and McLaren to a certain extent very much used to be. And if Fred Vasseur comes in, I think he definitely kind of continues that on from Matteo Bonato. But if Bonato th- thinks he was being pushed out because Ferrari wants to get rid of that, it's all it's all too friendly and too nice of Maranello. Then I think Fred Vasseur would really
3: struggle in that environment. And, and one other point is Pinotto, as you mentioned at the top, is a Ferrari man through and through 28 mm. years at the company. So it, it would be they've got to be careful that the other engineers don't look at it and say, well, who's next for the chop? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, for, for somebody so dyed in the wool marinello to sort of say, right, screw this, guys, I'm off I've had enough. And then, and then they bring in the guy from outside and i know vassar is obviously you know sauber and they've got links <laughs> with ferrari and so on it's not it's not like it's not his first day on the job or anything not in formula one i mean at the same time they're still, they still they they've got to be careful that there isn't that that sort of reprisals like you know you're the guy you're the reason you know you, you you're the reason my parents aren't together anymore that yeah. sort of thing you know <laughs> they've got to be careful that it doesn't descend into that for
1: sure okay before we move on to ferrari Coops, any final thoughts then about Bonato?
4: Well, funnily, you should mention it, Sean and other Sean. One. Uh, he's, both, uh, he's, both, he's both kind of touched on it. I've, I've been reading a few, a couple of articles. And the first thing I would say is, if you read the statement that Benotto brought out, he, his first line was, it's with regret that he's leaving. Mm. He's leaving because he has to. He's not leaving because he wants to. He's looked at the situation. He has discussions with his bosses. He's like, they don't want me here. They're mm. going to undermine me. I'm going. Secondly, I was reading. I've just had a look at some stuff here, and you know, there's the the quote here in this article which I'm reading. It, it said that there were strategic uh, strategic mistakes. There were some reliability issues, but Benotto didn't want the blame culture, so he didn't change any personnel. He didn't say, "Well, you're out, you're out, you're done. We're moving this." And John Elkin didn't like that, mm. so mm.
1: which again, he, to me, says that Fred Vasseur is not getting that job.
4: Well. I think there's also a lot to be get taken for when it's your guy. John Elkin inherited Bonotto.
2: Mm.
4: If John Elkin hires Basura, it's... He
1: might be able to control him more. Maybe
4: it's, yeah. it's his guy, it's his thing, mm-hmm. you know. You know, it's,
3: you know uh, I feel like we're, we're almost wandering into football analogies here, whereby, you know, the chairman comes in, decides he doesn't like the incumbent managers, he's going to bring in the guy that I like. Yeah. And, you know, and Elkin will be on thin ice as well if it doesn't work out, because, you know, to, to paraphrase Brian Clough, the legendary Nottingham Forest manager, if a chairman hires a manager and then sacks him, the chairman should go as well because he clearly mm. doesn't know who he's hiring. So, you know, Elkin will be on the block as well. So, you know, you, if when you start, in, you start moving all these things around and changing the interpersonal harmony of the team, yeah, you're playing a dangerous game. I mean, it's... Again, I hate to use this cliche, but again, it's just another day in the history of Ferrari, isn't it? I mean, it used to be back in the day, you know, Enzo Ferrari would would be pulling all of the strings with absolute authority, but he'd never be at the racetrack, and he'd always they would always be inviting at Ferrari because people would report back to Maranello with differing stories depending on what their agenda was, which used to infuriate people like John Surtees. And but the one thing he did say about Enzo Ferrari was at least he made decisions. You know, he didn't he didn't hmm. dilly dally on what he wanted to do. And uh, he did yeah, famously
1: but, say though that aerodynamics are for people who can't build engines, and that quote hasn't aged very well, has it?
3: Not not entirely. <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: Especially considering their engine. Is- has not been great anymore
3: <laughs> well i mean we say that but as you know as we've mentioned you know it's uh, it was it was very it, it was a very it was a very successful season for ferrari but undermined by the fact that red bull had a juggernaut of a season they made a very good car in a season when another team made an, an extraordinary car or at least an extraordinary driver team combination i would say you know because obviously Checo was not as quick as was Leclerc. And it was, uh, I think justice was done that Leclerc got second in the championship. Because I think if that had happened, that would have been the real kick in the cojones for Ferrari to lose second in the driver's championship when they so obviously should have got that. So in a way, in a way they maximized what they were going to get out of that. But yeah, sad. I mean, the one wild card we should consider is What's Binotto got lined up? is son- Has the phone rang and said, ah, Mr. Binotto, you're free from such such a date. Well, that's huh. interesting. Funny yes. you
4: should mention that, actually, because apparently, according to the Italian press, he's talking to Audi.
1: I was about to say it might be Audi. Um, Probably. That, that could be interesting, but... I think that's enough for Ferrari for right now. I think we have a lot of off-season content to talk about for Ferrari. So we'll mm-hmm. that. We'll save ourselves for some for some more December podcasts. We'll, we'll have nothing else to talk about. I'll just rattle through some of the other news stories. Obviously, nothing as big as Bonato. Logan Sargent is going to use the number two in Formula 1 when he starts next year, previously used by Stoffel Van Dorn. So it's been out of the running for a couple of years. Street tested the 2021 McLaren in a two-day test in Catalonia this week, which I suppose is more just getting embedded into the systems and settings for McLaren. McLaren. There's nothing he's going to learn of a 2021 car for 2023. Styles Mercedes have renamed the road leading to their factory after Nikki Lauda. They've named it Lauda Drive, which I thought was a lovely touch and a lovely tribute to Nikki Lauda. John Hughes, sorry, Jake Hughes is joining the McLaren Formula E team for 2023, which is great for him. And one thing that I thought was fun, which we might touch on when we talk about them a bit later, Esteban Ocon said that he's delighted that Alonso is going because Ocon himself did 98% of the grunt work this year and Alonso only did 2% of it. So whatever anyone thinks about how difficult the relationship with Gasly is going to be next, year apparently Ocon is only too delighted to be shot of his two-time world champion teammate so that is all the kind of major news stories so let us move on to the 2022 season review and Yes, it ended a bit early because in typical Red Bull fashion, when they win a championship, they can't really only do it at the last race, can they? They prefer to do it a few races early, which is exactly what Max Verstappen did in what turned out to be a bit of a masterclass. Sean, I'm sure you'll go through some of the records that he broke this year for us. But let's just start very quickly on uh, on Red Bull. They were... We won't we'll talk too much about them because I think we've talked them to death. They've been the, the, the talk of almost every podcast for the past six or seven weeks because they've been so dominant. But Sophia, just in in a couple of the short sentences, how good have Red Bull been this year?
0: Just total masterclass. Some of these races have been probably some of the best races in Max and even Checo's career. Red Bull's just outdone it. And we knew that they were going to do well coming off the back of the win for Max last season, obviously given all the other issues and situations that happened previously but we knew that they were going to be good but we didn't realize how good they were going to be and they've done some absolutely amazing races they've done some great sprints some great qualifying as well it's just been good and I'm also looking forward to see how it's going to be for next season because the pressure is definitely on to keep this momentum going for the new season so we'll see how it goes
1: for sure. It's something that is kind of not really talked about anymore. It was just how impressive it was for Mercedes and Red Bull back in the day to do it year after year after year. You don't really appreciate, especially constructors, whatever about the driver's title, but to do the constructor's title year on year on year is such an incredible feat. And just at the final standings where Red Bull had... 759 points at the Constructors' championships. Ferrari were second with 554 and Merck were third with 515. And Verstappen won the title with 454 points, which I believe is a record for the most points scored in a year. Correct me if I'm wrong, John. He's nodding his head. And Leclerc finished second with 308, three points ahead of Sergio Perez in third on 305. Sofia, on Perez... It wasn't a great end to the season for him. He very much probably should have finished second with that, domin- that amount of dominance in the car, but in sort of the same vein as we're looking at a positive spin for a Ferrari, he won more races this year than he ever has in his career, and he won Monaco.
0: Yeah, one of the most iconic tracks. Obviously, Monaco, you <laughs> expect it to be quite a boring one. It was actually probably one of the best races in Monaco that I've seen over the years with the unpredictability and the calls made by the race directors because at the time there was two and all the different strategy calls for that. But he did great. I mean, he did what he should do as number two. Given the situation with Brazil about not letting Checo pass, it would not have made a difference anyway by points. I think he would still have been one point behind anyway. So it wouldn't have made a difference. But like the amount of hate and the amount of like this. Not the same, but like a lot of distrust people have to Max saying like, oh, they shouldn't let him go. It wouldn't have mattered. And I feel like that is something that needs to be addressed because he, he wasn't going to win. He wasn't going to come in second. And like you said, it was great for Ferrari to get Charles and to P2 for it. Definitely deserving. I'm going to be really excited to see what he's going to do for next season. If he can finish every single race, because obviously he didn't finish. <laughs> i think i think you do enough three, to finish first first
1: first you must finish as michael schumacher said
0: exactly
1: uh coops quickly on red bull with danny ricardo joining them as a promo stunt let's be honest to wheel them out in america a couple of times next year is there pressure on sergio next year because i know he has a contract through 2024 but as we've seen with danny himself contracts mean nothing in the world of sport is that just an extra kick in line after all the, the shenanigans with Brazil going, Sergio, you know, fall in line behind Max or we'll put Danny in?
4: I mean, going by Danny's last two years in Formula One, what is there to fear? Well, that's a good point. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I mean I mean harsh for fair, harsh for fair. It's like I still don't know whether Formula One has just moved away from Danny Ricardo. Like it happens with a lot of drivers. They generate Formula One cars change, aerodynamic changes, engine changes, you know, philosophies change and drivers just don't adapt and as Danny fall into that trap. There's always going to be pressure within your Red Bull and especially when you're pet. and there's only so much you can say when, oh, well, my teammate was, you know, Verstappen. It's like, well, there's only so much times he could say, well, my teammate's Hamilton. You still have to produce something. Is there any added pressure? Uh, I think the pressure only happen if he starts to have really bad seasons. See, so if he starts qualifying 9th, 10th, 11th and Verstappen's pole, 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 then, you know, maybe. But I don't necessarily see it. I think the only caveat to that is Red Bull are probably the only team on the grid that aren't shy about changing their drivers mid-season. Most drivers Definitely don't. Not. So Red Bull might. But are you getting an upgrade if you punt Perez to put Ricardo in? I don't think so. Well, maybe
1: that's what they're... Trying to test is put him in the simulator, show him out for a few dummy runs, maybe give him an FP1 session here and there, and see can he adapt to the modern Red Bull better than he, he like does the does the air, the, the the ground effect style of the Red Bull still have the right characteristics that Danny likes, you know, a pointy front end, really strong front brakes that allow him to just send it up the inside on everyone at every corner on every track. God, I miss those days. Sean, what do you think? What were your thoughts on Red Bull? I suppose, as, as Sophia said, they're sort of masterclass, especially from Max this season. They were just absolutely relentless from after the second race onwards.
3: Yeah, it, it was. I mean, the car was so fantastic. In Verstappen's hands, especially on race pace, the fact that he could win from seven different grid positions mm. this year, the all-time record most grid positions won from in a career is nine. Was that one from seven this year? Um, And I think
1: that's really important as well because a lot of people kind of forget that when Seb was winning or even when the Mercedes were winning, they were qualifying on pole and vanishing. Yes, Max was categorically not doing that this year.
3: Yes, if I if memory serves me right, Sebastian Vettel has never won a Grand Prix from outside the top three on the grid. In Not outside the top three, no. So, yeah. Um, whereas Verstappen won from fourth, sixth, tenth, fourteen, hundred 14th, 132nd, lap and a <laughs> half to fine. Like I'll, I'll I'll start at the previous racetrack that we raced at, and I'll still catch it's up. The beach. And, yeah, yeah. I'll still I'll, I'll start in Austin, and I'll still beat you in Abu Dhabi from here. It was like that. So it was it was obviously a fantastic year, but we shouldn't discount. There was a little bit of a an ace up the sleeve for Red Bull this year, and that was their race strategy simulations. Most people this year. I mean they became Oracle Red Bull Racing this year and it was more than just a sticker on that sidepod Oracle were actually powering all of their race strategy simulations and the Red Bull said that they could they could do Twenty-five percent more race strategy calculations, thanks to Oracle support, than they could do previously. And there was a number of times this year where, strategically, they got it absolutely dead right and made Ferrari look like idiots. You know, you could say, in in at some at, the, at some level, some legal level, Mattia Bonotto should probably sue Red Bull for wrongful dismissal, or you know, <laughs> because he probably they probably cost Ferrari, you know, Benotto, his his career at Ferrari. But they they kept getting it right, and it wasn't it wasn't just doing the race on the computer. I call it. I call that driving the race on a computer instead of driving the race on the racetrack and not always in a positive way. A good Another good example of human intervention was the fact in Hungary when Perez and Verstappen went to the grid on the hard tyre and they both said, this tyre do- is not going to work. We can tell you from the outlap, these tyres are terrible. So they flipped the strategy and said, okay, we'll go to the medium tyre later in the race. Ferrari stopped with plan A, went to the hard tyre and then... Charles Leclerc started reversing through the field. And, you know, it, it, it was it was everything coming together perfectly. Everyone at the top of the game. And they, they they maximized it. I mean, I can think of very few instances where they really dropped the ball, other than what happened in Brazil, which was completely unnecessary. Max Verstappen spat his dummy out over a perceived slight from six months earlier that no one could remember. And... Um, that wasn't what- even
1: a team fault. That was just, as you said, one kid... Acting like a kid, throwing his toys out of the pram and having a, a hissy a hissy fit yeah, out of nowhere.
3: For several times after after Verstappen had clinched the title, I said several times on stage at the racetrack, I say folks, so the only thing Red Bull have never done in their careers is finish first and second in the second. driver championship. Now present, I present to you this scenario. Max Verstappen's leading and Checo Perez is second, and they ask Max to move aside to let Checo win to get second in the championship. Can any of you see Max Verstappen the two-time world champion, saying, please, after you, after all the times that Checo has helped him. And lo and behold, look at the circumstances. It played out <laughs> exactly <laughs> like not. that. Now, the thing is, that obviously caused disharmony at a time when there should be no disharmony. Mm-hmm. And I actually think... That you know, Ricardo has come along just the right time. Who you know is best pals with Max Verstappen, which is lucky because you know they basically live on opposing you know one floor above each other, and one of them could like <laughs> play loud music or something. And they didn't like each other. But the fact that those two get on so well, that means you know, Checo is going to feel you're not going to feel the 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 performance of Daniel Ricardo because obviously that was pretty mediocre the last two years. But he is mm. going to feel that. Clicky, you might feel like clicky sense of well, I'm I'm not in, I'm not with the in crowd. I'm not, you know, those two are best buds, and you know, I'm kind of the afterthought. So, you know, there'd be that going on as well. So, it's it's a good pickup. Actually, getting Ricardo in made perfect sense. He's not gonna, it's not going to cost a huge amount of money. He's coming back with his tail between his legs. They could name their price. He's a he's a PR dream, and also, you know, he he'll keep Max on side. You know, if Max was thinking Hmm. to myself, these guys. Let's say, let's say for argument's sake, and I, I, I'm not suggesting for one second that Max would throw his toys out of the pram again. I'm sorry, oh. that was obviously a single, isolated incident. But let's just say it did happen again. You know, having his best mate in there, well, you know, one of his best mates, you know, might tip the balance in terms of if Mercedes called him up, might hmm. say, well, no, kind of like it over maybe, here. Maybe I'll follow Seb to Ferrari. That sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you know, I mean? it's just having having your BFFs around. You know, factor that in.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of Danny Ricardo, I'm going to skip over Ferrari because we've talked about them quite a lot. I mean, a bit more to talk about them towards the end, but I want to move on to McLaren, who finished fifth, but we're talking about Danny, so is, I'm just going to link them together there. It was a bad season for McLaren, let's be honest. It was a brilliant season for Lando Norris, and I actually voted him as my driver of the season. I thought he, like all things considered, I thought he was just absolutely phenomenal. He carried the whole team. If, if Danny had even contributed 10% more... To the points, they'd have comfortably finished fourth. And if Danny had matched Lando like within a position or two every race, as he should have done in a team in the same car, they'd have been miles ahead of Alpine in fourth. Reliability or not for Alpine, even with the worst car, it was that that's how good I think Lando outdrove the car this year. But it was not good for Danny, and his contract has been cut short. And Oscar Piastri, after a year on the sidelines, having won everything back to back to back, is finally getting a shot in F1. And we are, Sean, you're not so secret McLaren fans on this podcast. So Coops, McLaren, let's let's maybe focus on the positives because I think we've talked a lot about the negatives. Bad start after the the, the break issues. Good season for Orlando, good right thing dropping. Danny, bit of good news bringing Piastri in or your kind of sum-ups of McLaren for the year? Yeah,
4: it's good for Lando. I mean, Lando, he, he faced the start of the season with Ricardo, who was the de facto team leader. He was brought in to lead the team. It looked like a good fit. It didn't seem to phase him. He just got on with it, even with the car being as bad as it was, and he produced what he needed to produce. You know, he, it, difficult for a young driver like Lando, coming in in the car just not working in a fundamental design issue, you know, and knowing that you're coming to a race weekend, knowing like, we're not going to fight for the points we're barely going to get above the volumes, or we're barely going to get, whatever. You know, and gradually they got themselves up uh, the grid. Uh, and he, he, he seemed to get rid of that kind of you know, jokey, clown sort of attitude he had at the start. Mm. Like, the maybe the first year he was the driver, he seemed to be a lot... Uh, there was a lot of criticism flung his way because he didn't seem to take it seriously. And now he did have... He still does have the jovial side of him, but there seemed to be a bit extra steel. And I think that was born more out of the fact that, wait a minute, i have got Danny Ricardo here. You know, I've got to, to show how this works. So... Mm. Yeah, it was good in that sense. It was it was difficult to watch when you see Danny Ricardo qualifying 14th and there's Lando. Well, oh, 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 he's fifth. All right, okay, never mind. Mm. You know, it was a it was a a difficult uh, a difficult in that respect because I think I don't think there's anybody even if you weren't McLaren fans that didn't want that partnership to work. Mm. And it was amazing how much it just didn't. I can't really remember any times but it was. But you can look at it and go, that's it. Even when he won, even when I watched him when he won, I still thought he only got there because of shenanigans and Norris was faster and was told to stay behind him. So, you know, it's just, yeah. What what do you think of
1: Piastri? Oh, hang on, well, Sean's, Sean's, Sean's put his hand up. Go on, <laughs> let, 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 let's throw it to you then for McLaren. Objection, Your Honour. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, I, the, well, the, stat man, the stat man is going to kill you with facts now. <laughs> no,
3: no, I, I agree. I agreed with everything apart from the last bit. And that was that Daniel Ricciardo was genuinely quick at Monza 2021. I, I mean, obviously Norris was quick too, but that was, the, that was the one weekend where Ricciardo looked like the guy that they'd hired because um, he was right. genuinely quick in qualifying, genuinely quick in the sprint and genuinely quick in the Grand Prix. I do agree he would not have won the Grand Prix almost certainly without that Verstappen-Hamilton collision. But, mm-hmm. you know the fact the fact remains that
1: he was there, he, to he, pick was it there
3: up. he was there to pick it up which of course he spectacularly has not been um mm. all the other times and uh, without question you know the harsh reality is as as was just mentioned you know he, he cost mclaren fourth in the constructors' championship this year by a mile that should have mm. been they should have just Cantered to fourth place, and instead they weren't in fourth at all. A little bit of gossip, by the way, from the Monaco set. So Lando Norris, right, just between us, girls. So Lando Norris apparently is moving into the same building as Ricardo and Verstappen. So he's going to go right. So yeah, he's going to be he's going to be going down to the parking structure late at night and putting stickers on his moped saying, <laughs> you know, or words to that effect. So I mean, Norris was the only guy from outside of the big three teams to get on the podium this year. Um, so he, he really did, he did a fantastic job and he was really doing the heavy lift at McLaren. So it'd be interesting to notice if the dynamic changes, if, cause if Piastri comes in and is uncomfortably quick, what will that do for Norris? Cause Norris has not necessarily been in that situation yet in his career. And he's going in, you know, he's unquestionably the top dog at McLaren right now. So, uh, you know, if Piastri comes in and is as quick as the reputation would suggest, Mm. what will that do within McLaren next year I mean the first thing it will do is score them more points but beyond that psychologically what will the battle be like
1: well we've seen it a lot of times haven't we where the the, the, the young upstart comes in and completely usurps the the, the the de facto leader we saw it with Danny himself against Seb we saw it this year with George against Lewis which was delightful Sophia what are your thoughts on, on Piastri we, we, we talk about him quite a lot in our chats we obviously all followed him through his spectacular F3 and dominant F2 careers he is Hopefully as good, in whether it translates to Formula 1, obviously we don't yet know, but in testing, not the testing times really matter, but it's all we can kind of go off. He was right up there. What do you think is he's going to bring to the team next year?
0: I mean, one thing I can say is you can, based off of testing, because look at how McLaren was in testing this season. Everyone thought that we were going to do so well, and then obviously... They were good
1: in the cold, they just didn't know that the heat was going to break the brakes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but again, testing, it, it's... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I think, obviously, it's a lot of pressure for Oscar as well. But again, he has better accolades as well as a driver outside of the F1 compared to Lando. Obviously, they did both do F2 and everything. But what Oscar's achieved as well... And the fact that he didn't get a seat straight in is quite still shocking. I've said this every time as well. Like The fact also that Felipe Drugovich doesn't have a seat. Mm. He is the... F- Like fourth driver in five seasons of F2 that has not gotten an F1 seat straight away. Obviously, he's a development driver for Aston Martin, which is good. But they said, will I get him a seat next year? We don't know. And then obviously, you have Logan Sargent coming in now into the Williams, who did a decent all right in F2, I will say. But obviously, I think it should have been Felipe. Felipe. But with Piastri, it'll be interesting. I think, like I said, pressure. It, obviously, Australia will be quite an interesting one for him as well. His home mm-hmm. race in F1, especially now that F2 and F3 is also racing in Australia next season for the first time ever as well. But there will be pressure. I think Lando as well has to have more of a forceful say in some of the things because I think McLaren might just push him to the side now, especially if Oscar's going to be doing well, which we're expecting that he does. And again, we're thinking more of the team, but obviously the drivers, are, they might go head to head as well. We could see some battles as well, especially with both of them being quite on par with each other. And we'll see it within the first two races of the season, how if similar they are or how not similar they are. And that also decide what's going to happen this season. Are they going to crash out with each other? Are they going to fight or are they going to be like a Red Bull and do a one-two? But the question is, who's number one and who's number two?
1: Well, on paper, at least, he, he doesn't have, you know, too much of a bar to clear. Danny Ricardo only scored 37 <laughs> points this season. So he, do, he, he doesn't have as high a bar to clear as he would if Danny Ricardo had matched though, yeah. Yes, John, you had your hand up again there. What? Well, <laughs> any, any fun <laughs> facts me. for us about McLaren or Piastri?
3: If you have something worth saying, say it to the whole class. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, just backing up what uh, Sophia said, f2 champion f3 champion is a rookie f2 champion is a rookie there's only three drivers have ever done that Charles mm-hmm. Leclerc, george russell and piastri that's, that's mm-hmm. top draw talent mm-hmm. Wiz- you know in certainly in terms of the hype he could not have possibly done anything better but what most impressed me about piastri in f2 was that after a relatively modest start by the end of the season i think i think he took five consecutive polls to end that season now that is a real bellwether of how good they're going to be and when the fact the fact he'd go out and take poll every time you just thought I've seen enough like Mm. just get Move this guy on. Like, give him all the
1: money. <laughs> yeah, it's just like
3: we've seen enough here. I mean, Lewis Hamilton, when he won the GP2 title in two thousand six, only took pole once, as far as I remember. That was Monaco. So Mick Schumacher
1: didn't take pole at all. I don't think Mick
3: Schumacher never qualified on the front row in his F2 career, which is hmm. I always said. I, I mean, I was never convinced on Mick Schumacher's career based upon that. The fact that Nikita mazapin had been on the front row and and Mick Schumacher had not, I always said. You know, Mazepin should be quicker. I was the only person def- in defense of Mazepin, you know, defending the indefensible, it felt like it sometimes, but the facts <laughs> backed it up. And with Piastri, it's the opposite. It's literally Piastri was wiping the floor with everybody every qualifying <laughs> session. You just thought, you know, th- this guy's wasting his time in F2. He's got to move up. So it- it's-, it's fair to say that the, the hype train... The hype train for Piastri is is justified. The results are there. It's not like when you know, like Yuki Tsunoda came into F one, scored points mm. in his debut, and everybody went, "Oh, it's going to be the greatest Japanese driver in history." And I just thought, have you people never seen Formula One before? I mean, Satoru Nakajima was seventh on his Grand Prix debut. We didn't think he was the second coming of Nuvolari. Calm down. <laughs> but with Piastri, yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot. There's a lot of expectation because he comes into it with. A reputation in the league of Russell and Leclerc. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: as I said, we are very much not so secret McLaren fans. We are all McLaren fans here and I myself am a big fan of Piastri. I was hugely impressed with his F2 season and I'm very excited to see him and I'll move on we'll move on then to the team that let him go because Opmar Zafnauer as I've said many times is a bit of an idiot and he <laughs> sort of proved that again this is kind of my ongoing rhetoric Sean on, on this podcast is I really I I, I mean, whatever way he presents himself in public you might have
3: met him he might be lovely I, I've I've interviewed him on stage yeah <laughs> and he told he told me he was a big fan of your podcast he You might want to, you might be watching the live stream right now, in which case, hi, Otmar. Hi, Otmar. I I wish to distance myself from the comments you just heard.
1: (laughs) Hi, Otmar. Unfortunately, the comments you made last week, mate, were not great. They seemed a little bit petty coming out and saying, we're glad we didn't get Piastri. We got Gasly. He's still young and he's faster. One, you can't possibly know that. Oscar Piastri hasn't raced in Formula One yet. Gasly just has a reputation and not saying he's not quick. He absolutely is. But I felt like that was just a completely unnecessary comment to make about a kid (laughs) who duped him out of the legal battle because, you know, he read the contracts wrong. But moving on from that, you know, Alpine lost two drivers this year. They lost the up-and-coming, absolute hottest talent on the market. And they lost the two-time world champion as well. So they're getting an all-French team, and that's very exciting. And that'll be big for them PR-wise, but they've lost the French Grand Prix. So, you know, it's been a weird season for Alpine. They did finish fourth, arguably with Danny not performing and Alpine on paper at least in qualifying especially having the quicker car like that, that Alpine is a good car but as has literally always been the case for as long as I've been watching Formula 1 Renault are incapable of building engines that work properly so they're just blowing up all the time especially in Alonso's car so Coops <laughs> sum up Alpine season
4: <laughs> hey, a lot of hard work and a Spanish toddler yeah <laughs> yeah. <Gosh>. she, yeah. <laughs> like that car should have took forth by a canter, you know, by an
1: absolute mile, yeah.
4: <laughs> and then I don't know what they were doing to Alonso's car, but I think Sean might be able to correct me. But I think he retired. Alonso retired four times with an with a water leak, just a water leak. Out of oh, all the yeah. times he retired, mm-hmm. all majority were water uh, well, issues. I might say uh,
3: it might say in mitigation that that's a subjective thing. Mm. Um, yeah, it's not it, like, like the water like, bottle cracked water. five times. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Water. It might be like, look, the water was leaking from here from this massive engine hole in the engine block. You know, mm. <laughs> you know yeah. that's a water leak. You know, yeah. so yeah, carry on.
4: Yeah, but Ocon, Ocon is, you know, I, I I didn't like him when I like for a while there, and I don't know what it was about him. Now I, I mean, I'm not a Formula One driver clearly, but something about him rubbed me up the wrong way. I don't know if it was how he carried himself or what it was. Anyway, and he's quietly got on with it. Yeah, okay, the comments he's made at the end of the year about Alonso were completely unnecessary. I mean, Mm. come on. He's away, or almost, just move on. You're there. You're going to be the head honcho in the team, you know. Uh, And you finished ahead of him in the standings. So, you know, let the the driver standings take you know, do the talking for you. And then Alonso's behavior as well, you know, near the end, but he was kind of, I think, what was it he said? Where, where it was like, oh, only two more races and I can uh, go and drive the green car and stuff. You're like, really, Fernando, come on. Uh, he'll be back
1: again eventually. He can't stay away from <laughs> Renault, can he?
4: <laughs> well, I think he's kind of burned the bridges with the last of the people that are still there by mm. the sounds of things and the attitude he's making, you know. He tends to burn bridges a lot of places he goes. I mean, he talked that badly about Honda, that Honda wouldn't let him use their engine when he went to Indy. You know, <laughs> he had to mm. scramble about, and you know, and then he's kind of made those comments when he left. But, you know, Alpine's car was good, but the philosophy they came out with was they wanted, they sacrificed reliability to get the performance, thinking that they could then work on reliability later, which... Was a very risky thing to do, and yes, it paid off, and it paid off relatively easily, comfortably. But for a wee while there, you were just a bit kind of, this could be a very expensive decision. So hopefully, the fact it was a lot closer than it probably should have been, the big, you know, they're, they're in the, whatever whatever their base is, you know, sitting there thinking, we're not doing that again. <laughs> we're going to make sure the car doesn't fail, and if we're a wee bit slower. least we're there and keep ourselves around the points and then we can move. So yeah, they've got a really good car and Gasly and Ocon, Gasly's a solid, dependable driver. He doesn't do it. He's not going to do the Alonso with the media pen. He's not going to be huffing and puffing and stamping his feet when he comes out of the car. Yeah, there'll be the frustrations as every driver has when things don't go their way. But, you know, the only reservation I have is Ocon and Gasly the whole thing about them not liking each other back in the day is overblown because people mm. like drama and they need a bit of drama. It's like the K-Mag and, you know, how Yeah, they had a wee thing in the pen once, but I don't think it ever went anywhere. They, 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 you know, that was it. They had their one thing each. They said their bit and everyone's like, oh my God, they don't like each other. Move on. Uh, but this, I just think Ocon and Gasly are very are too similar. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't, you know, you, you don't want, drivers to be the same as each other like you uh, like you have Ocon who's dependable when he is Ocon and then you've got Alonso who'll drive this crap out of the car and grab it by the scruff of the neck and put it in fifth when it should be 15th you know you want the two different it's you want two different types of driver to depend on depending on the circumstances and if you have a plan A that doesn't work because it doesn't work for Ocon chances are it's probably not going to really work for Gasly they're, they're just very similar in drivers that's, my, that's the way I look at kind it. Of, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting into trouble from the man again, I think. Oh, oh, Statman, I actually wanted to ask you, uh,
3: what, what, what did you want to say first on that? Well, i tell you somebody who tried two different types of driving for the last couple of years was McLaren. How did that work out?
1: Yeah, that didn't work well. Very <laughs> good point. Very good point. <laughs> um, but, but, moving on. Uh-huh. Sean, a, a, ra- a random one for you. Has, to, to your knowledge, has anyone gone back? Has any Formula One driver ever gone back to a team more times than Fernando Alonso has gone has raced for Renault? Because it's three times now.
3: Yeah, someone else asked me that on Twitter a few weeks ago. I forget forget what I came up. With. I mean, I mentioned Nigel Mansell's constant returns to for, to Williams. You know, no season was complete without Mansell being going back to Williams <laughs> in some capacity. I mean, he made what well, he went to Williams. Well, he went to Williams first in 85, then went back in 91, then went back again in 94. So... So it, that's the say it three. Yeah, it's three. Yes, three. There might there might be somebody else who I'm not thinking of right now. I can't forget what the... Uh, long story short, I can't remember what the answer was. In but...
1: the 50s when they were all just jumping into whatever yes, car to yeah, have a driver in it.
3: Exactly. There, you know, that sort of instance can happen. But in the case of Ocon, I've always thought of him to be a slightly Machiavellian character in that he's ever so pleasant in real life. And... But oh, that's and, good to know. Yeah, like, I and, like him. But I've also seen him act like a complete bastard on the track, particularly in regards to when he was forced into your teammates with Chair Perez. The pair of them, you know, they're literally using the words, you're trying to kill me, to mm-hmm. each other. And it got very, very annoying. And of course, who had to referee that one but Mars Staffnauer? So <laughs> I would say that. If Ocon has become more Machiavellian in the mean, well, he learned from the best because the other guy was Fernando Alonso, who is arguably the most Machiavellian character to have ever been in Formula One doing, Mm. you know, he has done a lot of underhand stuff, but for a driver as good as him to be a a political operator who I would argue has not been very good political operator, (laughs) I mean, he's definitely in terms of maneuverings, he's up there with Alain Prost in terms of actual correct decisions, less so because. You know, he's, as, as was mentioned, he's talked his way out of McLaren and Honda, and now he's burned his bridges at Endstone. Okay. You know, it's going to be, i tell you what, it's, uh, you know, the great fire of London might have been started by Fernando Alonso from doing all this stuff, <laughs> because there's, there's a lot of stuff where he's really, for a, for a man of such staggering ability, uh, and to be this old, performing this well. No driver should be this old and doing as well as Fernando Alonso is doing. He literally is going against the grain in the record books. The oldest driver on the podium, well, well, one of the three, two drivers over forty in the last twenty five years to have been on the podium in a Grand Prix. It's uh, he continues to confound me. But when the when the when the book is written on Alonso's career, you know we will look back and say he did some just appallingly mis- appalling miscalculations off the racetrack, and um, now. Ocon and Gasly are put together and I also agree that I think their past misdemeanors are overhyped but I also think we won't need to worry about those because they'll hate each other as teammates pretty pretty soon anyway once they run into each other or are arguing over the same piece of track or whatever I'm sure pretty quickly they'll hate each other's guts so you know so uh, all's well, it ends well, and I'll pay. Good luck, everybody.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is gonna be it's going to be fascinating to watch them next year. want to move on to Mercedes. Now, I know they finished third, and we're talking about them quite late in the podcast, but other than building a pretty poor car and having to work on it all season, they didn't have all that much to talk about this year. Obviously, the big talking point is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Statman, is that for the first time in his competitive career since 2003, Lewis Hamilton has not won a race in or any category or series or taken pole which is a really unfortunate record for him to lose. I'm delighted because on the first podcast of the year, I predicted, and I've said it a few times, that Mercedes will get one race this year and it won't be Lewis. And I was completely right. Technically, they got one and a half race wins this year and neither was Lewis. So, you know, but he said at the start, you know, my team don't make mistakes, but they did, and a pretty massive one. That car, even in Abu Dhabi, I know the porpoising came back for a lot of them in Abu Dhabi, but after all the work they've done all season, that car still looked like, it was on a space hopper. So whatever they've done has not worked all that well. And I'm sure they're only too delighted about the floor changes for next year to literally force them to redesign the car in a big way to get rid of the porpoising because whatever they've done just hasn't worked. But on the flip side of that, I thought Russell had a great year. So Sophia, Mercedes, what did you think about them this year overall?
0: I mean, I said it at the start of the season, George was going to finish above Lewis and proven obviously they it was kind of a wave with mercedes obviously they started very low then went slightly high and then back, like it was just a constant wave and obviously like the porpoising issue was one of the more consistent things and then very similar to how ferrari is where the second half of the season they just do quite well obviously that wasn't the case for ferrari this season but like <laughs> realistically they do quite well in the second half of the season but for George, it was great. I I thought they were going to swap in Brazil. I thought they were going to have Lewis to keep his records and all of that. I don't know. It was maybe my wishful thinking because, again, I am based on Sean and I like my stats and my numbers and records. So I would love to see Hamilton keep that record going and see how far that can go. But obviously, George's first win and then obviously winning the sprint as well also is quite nice. But, yeah, I mean, like you said, with the four changes happening for next season... I think they're going to need all the time they have in the wind tunnel and all the tests. I'm expecting them not to do well for the first couple of races in, in the new season and in testing. They're probably sandbagging and testing as they always do. But the first couple of races, again, they're going to have the same similar problems. And then similar to how it was this season, pull it out of the bag towards the end, maybe take a few wins. And I hope George gets more wins than Lewis for next it's season.
1: It's interesting you said there about like what they have swapped not a hope in hell. There's no way George Russell's, but I know everyone said last year, you know, Oh, what he said in, in Hungary was so great. And he's proven to Mercedes that he's such a team player. And he would be number two to Lewis. I thought immediately, like not a hope in hell. He was playing the game because he was in Williams and he knew Williams needed the points. There's no way in hell was George Russell going to Mercedes and going, here you go, Mr. Sir Hamilton. Through you go there. There was never going to happen. Sean, what were your thoughts? I'm oh, sorry. Sophia, on.
0: I, I think if Mercedes is doing well for the season, then probably, but I don't know, because obviously with Hamilton, it technically a home race in Brazil as well. I think if Mercedes was to win, if George was to win previously early on the season, I think they probably would have let him do it.
1: I think they would have Maybe. asked him to do it. I still yeah. don't think George would have done it. I think, have di- I think we would have had a different sort of team having a team
3: uh, team orders route. Sean, what did you think of, of Mercedes' 2022 season? Well, firstly, I just want to address Interlagos by saying I thought Lewis Hamilton was going to pass Russell in a normal race. Track. I thought he was going to, because the safety car bunched them up, Hamilton was going to be in a DRS zone. The DRS is so, so strong at Interlagos. It's such a good track to overtake on. I thought, oh, Hamilton couldn't it couldn't work out better. And Russell kept him in his pocket in those last few laps. And I thought, wow, that was impressive the way he just kept him at bay there. As for the, any opportunity of any any thought that Russell would move out of the way, get lost, no chance. <laughs> you must be joking. There was ne- it, 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 sorry, it would have been, you know, no speak English, me no understand yeah. radio, you know, or he would pull the radio lead out. By the way, it reminds me that there's supposedly this incident when Keke Rosberg was driving at McLaren and Ron Dennis quoted some sort of biblical some Bible quote to him on the radio to give him some inspiration. And heck, literally yanked the the radio lead out. He couldn't hear the rest of the radio for the race, but he didn't have to listen to that nonsense. Anyway, I don't know if that's true, but it's a great story if it is. Um, I would like to bring a motion to your uh, devoted listeners. Lewis Hamilton, driver of the season 2022. Controversial opinion, question mark. Here's why, here's the case for the prosecution, if you will. Start of the season, Hamilton's 103 Grand Prix in his career. He's had seven world titles, some may say eight. And instantly he's got a career, a a car that's the worst he's had in the hybrid era. And in the first half of the year, George Russell's uh, outpacing him and so on. Well, of course, as viewed retrospectively, Hamilton was working on troubleshooting the problems, whereas Russell had a standard setup as a comparison point. So Russell was beating him in qualifying and beating him in the races. We remembered Imola when Hamilton was lapped. Hamilton was out in Q1 in Jeddah. The car was all over the shop. He was nowhere. And we all thought, oh, he's he's passed it. Some people were saying, oh, maybe he'll retire. So I always thought it was nonsense. I thought, what, do you think he's forgotten how to drive in three months? You know, three months ago, he was half a lap away from winning the world title. From Canada onwards, and I have, I, I, didn't check what it was post-Abu Dhabi, but certainly in the run-in, the season run-in, only Leclerc and Verstappen had outscored Lewis, even though he hadn't won a race. So uh, Hamilton in the second half of the year, once he went back to performance-based setup, was, was the more convincing of the Mercedes drivers. But alas for him, Russell got the more, the headline results, the pole in Hungary, the win uh, at Interlagos. But I think what, what, What I thought was so admirable about Lewis this year was he was able to put his ego on the shelf and say, right, guys, we're not going to win this championship. But if we do the hard yards now, we might win it back in 2023. And for a driver in his position, squillions of dollars, you know, admiration, you know, hanging out with the Kardashians, all this sort of stuff to basically say, I will run the risk of being knocked out in Q1, tooling around, trying to pass Yuki Tsunoda for 13th place, because maybe 12 months from now it will pay off. That to me was so impressive. And not I, I not many world champions would have done that. Yeah, I I, I would argue that, that this season for Lewis Hamilton was more impressive to me than a lot of his title winning years. When you've got, you know, when he's winning the world title, when all he basically had to do was beat Valtteri Bottas. This was much more impressive when you think you kind of, you know, it makes it look like you're a washed up has-been and this new kid who's just come into the team is much quicker than you. And instead, the, the, the payoff is they solve that problem. They didn't solve it completely. They lost six months of development and it showed throughout the season, mm-hmm. but they did end up winning a race and they can go into the off-season thinking, you know what? We've actually got a cat in hell's chance in 2023, which you would not have said Post Imola, for instance, when they just look all over the shop and just a shadow of their former self. Now they they now look like a team that could actually win races. They're not as quick as Red Bull, but they've they've come a long way. To come back that quickly from from being useless to being race winners, I thought was so impressive. And and Lewis Hamilton was a big part of that.
1: Your thought. Well, I will put it to our listeners. By all means, if you have the capacity to comment wherever you are listening, then by all means do, or tweet us at join EF1. Do you think Sean is right? Was Lewis Hamilton the driver of the season? Now I'm sure we'll get some people who will just say yes because he always is. In mean, the same way, the people will, some people who are hardcore Nicholas Latifi fans, I'm sure there's one or two. I, I was probably... I-
3: I want to add, just for full disclosure, those of you who follow me on Twitter will have seen that the photograph, the, the mural on the wall of my office is Max Verstappen passing Hamilton to win the World Championship last year. <laughs> just in the interest of editorial balance. Yes, um, you're, not, bl- you're not saying large... this from the face of an F, I, from a Hamilton fan. I am, not wearing, I am not wearing my I heart Lewis bubble hat and, you know, flashing sunglasses. I, you know, I just think that uh, Lewis, to, to do that from a position of weakness, was, was impressive. Mm. It's, it's easy to win world championships when you're in the best car and you're a, a driver as good as Lewis. But to do what he did this year when you're that good and you know basically you're throwing away, I thought was very impressive
1: well if you agree with Sean tweet us at join EAF1 if you don't tweet him and tell him he's
3: way off base <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the first time that that's happened to me
4: well, well you know you're doing it right when Sean gets told he's a fanboy of Lewis Hamilton on Twitter and then the next day he's the fanboy of Berkshire Stappen. so exactly. you're like you're know, getting perfect it,
3: that's it the perfect source when you get that within the same Grand Prix oh my god you're <laughs> such a max fanboy oh my god you're such a... that's when you know That's that's <laughs> like when like Twitter stops and it just says level 2 Fight.
4: Yeah. <laughs> it's the, it was the it was the vitriol you got when you, were, when you put the picture up of your picture with the cloak and everybody went mental because I follow your Twitter. It's just right. like
3: oh, Yeah, it's I,
4: a I- picture. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's a picture, guys. Yeah, I didn't murder somebody. It's just like, it's just as visceral as if I got a picture of Benner and Protz colliding at Stazuka in 1990. It's an iconic moment in F1 history, a highly controversial one, but an iconic one, whether, you know, for better or for worse. I just thought that'll look great on the wall. It'd be a good... <laughs> if I bring someone around to my house and they just, you know, they storm out, I'll know that they were a Lewis fan.
1: That's not about it. I, I might just get that from my own wall here. Just, just right. start to, to, to test guests on the podcast. If they come on and go, oh God,
3: right, then they, we know to avoid those questions. Right, and then put up like a photograph of Timo Glock on the wall. Yeah, you know, This sort of stuff. Just, just, just to test, <laughs> just, just, just throw it them. out there. Just throw yeah. it out there. How what, what kind of vibes you're getting from this?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right, let's move it on from Mercedes then to Haas. Obviously, Mick Schumacher is leaving Haas. And when we last spoke about this, on the podcast, we had Ben Hunt join us. It was the day before this announcement was officially made, and we spoke about it as if it had been made. And again, we were right. So, if uh, Nico Hulkenberg, of course, is returning to Formula One again after three full seasons out, he's had a couple of guest spots here and there. And Ben, at the time, said that this was he, Nico's a lovely guy. He's a great driver, great racer, great like world great like star for Formula One, but not the best person to come back. And a lot of people said, you know, Haas and uh, Gunther said as well, oh, we made a mistake with two rookie drivers and we don't want two young drivers again, but that doesn't really hold weight anymore in my mind, because Kevin Magnussen is not a young driver. He's already in his thirties. So, you know, he's nearly the same age as Danny Ricardo. He's not a young driver by any means. He's very much a team leader and has that capacity. Maybe it should have been Felipe Djurgovic who won the F2 title in Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen style with three months to go. Or, any of a number of other former F2, current F2 or other like exiled drivers. Coops, what are your thoughts on Haast? Were they right to axe Schumacher? Yes. Okay, that's nice and easy. Were they right to hire Hulkenberg?
4: Yes. Interesting, right. <laughs> Let's have a <laughs> no. go at this one. <laughs> okay, so the reason this, uh, the reason Schumacher went was that they basically told him at the start of the season, like, we know you're fast. Like, can you stop crashing? Well, that didn't work well.
1: He said no, didn't
4: it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he had the massive crash in Saudi when Haas just decided not to rebuild the car. I think it was to do with spare parts and things like that for, you know, the next flyaway. So they were a bit kind of, we don't know. Then they, then they had the massive shunt in Monaco. And mm-hmm. then the kind of nail on the coffin, I think, was when he burned it after the end of the practice session, when he was finishing his practice starts in Suzuka, I want to say.
1: Japan then, yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, you know, when your bosses are telling you, look, please don't crash as much as last year, you're costing us a lot of money. And then you, from what I've heard, and Sean might be able to kind of verify or say I'm wrong, I think he was the driver that cost his team the most money in terms of damage when accidents and things like that. So, yeah, you know, he, he never convinced me. Sean touched on it at the start of the early on in the podcast. He never convinced me when he came to Formula One. Uh, You know that way, you get drivers like Piastri, is one of them. There's drivers that come on, and there's something you're just like, oh, you know, it's maybe I'm not, you know, experienced enough of Formula One to be able to articulate why I feel that way. And, you know, Sean might be able to, and other people are, but there's times when I've the years I've watched Formula One, you just see someone, you think, he's good. You know, when I first watched Lewis Hamilton in 2007, you're like, oh, well, he's good. You know who is this kid? You know, and the other drivers, you get something similar, and they don't quite meet that, and others go on to do it. Schumacher never did, and I think there was a there was a lot of romance around his name, and there was a lot of that mm. when he came into Formula One. I think people hoped that he would be good, but nobody's going to be Michael Schumacher. No one, even yes, even his son's not going to be Michael Schumacher. And you know what the rumors are? He's going to Mercedes as a test driver. Brilliant. Same for Ricardo. keep him in the game. Mercedes, I think Total Wolf has kind of hinted that Gunter, he thinks Gunter Steiner didn't manage it right. I think there was more to Schumacher leaving. I think there was a bit of friction with the entourage and some issues mm. back behind the scenes. You know, a couple of years at Mercedes, top line, maybe end up at Williams in a couple of years if things don't work out there. You know, there's options if he goes there. But yeah, then to move over to Hulkenberg coming in, the the biggest issue has have most teams have just now is... Who, who do you have? If you don't want to do a rookie, because you've tried it, they had Mazepin, it didn't quite work for them. Uh, and then, of course, it went because of other factors. Mick Schumacher, as a rookie, didn't work for them. So what kind of experienced drivers do you call up on? You know,
2: mm.
4: who are we talking? And you going to fling a hundred money, lots of money, and make a hack and go, big chief? You, eh. you know, <laughs> you're you're you know, next hate fields of the world, you know, like is, is it not a
1: huge risk for them though? Because yes, Nico, you know, he's, hes you know, arguably the, the king of the midfield famously never scored a podium in his entire career. And I'm pretty sure he still holds that record and probably always will for most races without a podium, uh, unless there's some magical rain in Japan next year or in Miami. And he gets a magical home win for Haas, but I'm not going to put money on that one. But I mean, you're right, it's not maybe the end of Mick's career. You know, a quarter of the drivers on next year's grade have left Formula One and come back, which is absolutely insane. Just look at it there. Sophia, it, it, what are your thoughts? Sorry, so, go on. Sorry,
4: before, before we go to Sophia, it's a win-win for Haas in a sense. Hülkenberg's been out for two years. If it doesn't work, well, he's been out for two years. Mm. If it does work, well, we knew. We look good. We were right. But the other thing is, Nico is known for his, for his detailed technical feedback with the car. For a team like Haas, who have now got their title sponsor that are bringing them up to the cost cap, you want someone who can come in and say, this needs change." Mick might be good technically, but he's not been there enough to be able to get the nuances and feel the car. You've got two very dependable mid-tier drivers. And for a team like Haas, you're not getting a world champion. You're not getting a world champion elect. You're not getting a future world champion. You're getting people that are going to be dependable. Where has want to be in the next two years is beating Alpha beating Williams, and get in amongst the bottom of that mid-table against your Aston Martin, maybe McLaren if they're lucky. You know, they know where they are in terms of the pecking and order. And you want to be in and amongst that. And also the other side of it is that we might have forgot about is this the uh, you know, the CFD time that they're going to get. You want to to maximise that. They're getting extra with the folk in front of them. They want to bring in people that know how to go. That's not right. That's better. Do this. Change that. You don't want to be sitting spending three three quarters of your time babysitting somebody and fighting with their entourage and then telling them not to crash the car. Mm. You know, Mick might have be a good driver in the future and learn from people and come back in a few years' time and be a good driver. I don't think he'd be a world champion. If he comes back, he'll be... ironically, a Nico Hülkenberg-style mid-tier decent dependent drive could be. Can I play devil's advocate for one second on this?
1: And Sean, Sophia, feel free to jump in on me with this. Arguably, maybe he wasn't given enough time by Haas because last year was such a blowout of a rubbish season with one of the worst cars ever put on an F1 grid. He absolutely wiped the floor with his teammate who, as Sean rightly said, arguably had more impressive feats in Formula 2 in terms of actual sparks of sheer speed being on the front row lots of podiums last year was such an underwhelming it should have been written off and and he he would have learned nothing absolutely nothing and maybe maybe Toto's right maybe Gunther didn't quite manage it right last year there was so little to be learned that maybe there was not enough pressure on him and Mazepin to perform better and coming into this year, because there was so little pressure on them last year, this should have been his almost debut season. It wasn't officially, but in terms of like they had a decent car, it could have scored points. He could have actually shown what he was worth, and he did score points. He he was he was out racing Magnuson quite a bit, but obviously, there was obviously that then Brazil, Poland last. That doesn't look great. But I I I thought just playing devil's advocate, I thought it was a bit harsh to just dump him out because oh, you've had two years now, you're not good enough. We need someone who can score points and who can develop the car for us.
3: Personally, I mean, I'd seen enough. My opinions, but like Coop's opinion. I I think he put it completely perfectly. Uh, And getting Hülkenberg in is a safe pair of hands at a time when they just don't want the, uh, the accident damage. It is quite funny that, as you mentioned, Hülkenberg has the record for most Grand Prix starts without finishing on the podium. And he has joined the team on the grid that has the most Grand Prix starts without a podium. Um that was that is a, that was a great stat. <laughs> So so there is a certain synergy there. And now what's gonna happen, because this is the stuff that happens to me as a statistician, a is he's gonna get a podium. podium in the Hass in a sprint race. Yes. And I'm gonna my head will explode in as often. I think I, I I I don't I don't know. What I'm supposed to do with this stat? Where do you want this one to go? Is it a <laughs> is it a podium or isn't it? What are we calling?
1: Massive asterisks beside it. Right,
3: that's what's going to happen. <laughs> First you know, sprint race next year. Oh, I put the, my the, money the, on that one.
4: The, the funniest thing was when when K. got called. All I was saying to everybody in the chat was Statman's got
3: to go mental because yeah. where, <laughs> yeah. the, where the hell is
4: Because he complained from the start and he doesn't know. Yep.
3: And I'm still complaining about it now. Like, you've got to take a firm line with these people. Like, I'm sorry, no. Pole position is who was ever in first on the starting grid. And now we have this situation. Sorry, you've started You've, you've started me now, but I'm not going to stop. It's Sao like Paulo Grand Prix 2022, George Russell, started from first on the grid, got the fastest lap, won the race, and doesn't get a hat-trick, because he didn't get pole, because the guy who was in the wet session on Friday gets pole position, and now Kevin Magnussen has a pole position and has to have a pole position without ever starting on the front row in a Formula One race. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Why don't we do this the correct way in 2023 and avoid this unnecessary confusion? You are welcome.
0: We well, got six chances now as well with the six sprint races going on for next season. God, I can't wait it. to
3: chat to you at the end of next year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm having a nervous breakdown just thinking about it. Just let's, let's, let's move let's, on. Let's like, move on from Has. Hopefully, us. what will happen is that they will, they will realize. Wouldn't it be much better if we have the sprint as some sort of standalone event and it's just there's no confusion about it and just the person's on pole, they're on pole on Sunday, and then you know everybody lives happily ever after instead of thinking, "Oh, Kevin Magnuson's on pole." I'll tune into the Grand Prix. I want to see what Kevin... Hang on a minute. He's eighth on the grid. Oh, you said he was on pole. Yeah, well, he's not on pole now. George Ross is on pole. What do you mean he's on He said there was on... Yeah, that, that's the nonsense we're having to deal with anyway. So I digress. I don't want to detract. <laughs> I don't want to detract from the high standards of uh, fact-checking and debate that's going on in this show. Let's move on, shall we? Hi, everyone.
1: <laughs> Let's very quickly touch on Nick DeVries, who, who is finally getting his debut in Formula One next year, full debut in Formula One next year after... Just a spectacular outing for Williams. Sophia, how impressed are you with Nick? Oh my
0: God! Like the quick turnaround and to come out and also get points on debut as well.
4: Again, in a Williams.
0: In a Williams as well, and as well, not it's a big feat, I and mean, obviously taking a year, uh, taking time out, but even in his testings as well. Like I've, he did five different team testings this season. I think five. He's, six. He's
1: driven half the cars on the grid. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's driven every Mercedes car, I believe.
0: Yeah, well, it helps to, be, <laughs> helps to be working within Mercedes, which goes back also to Schumacher. If Schumacher goes over, I can see that happening. Look at mm-hmm. Alcon as well. Alcon was with Mercedes and now Al- is working with Alpine after a year out. I think it's definitely what's needed. But De Vries, is, it's going to be good. I Again, there's going to be pressure because obviously he performed very well for his first ever F1 race in a Williams with minimal time to do it as well. Like, what was he? He was free practicing in like an Aston and then like,
1: Yep, and jumped into the Williams. Uh,
0: yeah, within a couple hours of it and everything. It's absolutely crazy. It's going to be interesting seeing how he works with Yuki as well. Given what we've seen with Yuki and Gasly off track and obviously on track as well, I I can't figure out how that dynamic's going to be. I, mm. I don't understand it. I can't see it. I also do think as well for Yuki, he has had a decent season, but I If he doesn't do well, he's going to be gone. I think this is now a curse of rookie drivers. Two seasons—if you're not doing well, you're gone. And I think he's probably a good case in point for that as well. But we'll see. For Dries, yeah, like I said, it's going to be interesting. Want to see when he comes in, how well he does. I think he's going to finish above Yuki. I don't see any podiums, but I see a consistent driver getting the points, not doing stupid mistakes, not spinning, not hitting walls.
4: I mean, oh god. The thing about Nick DeBrief is he's not that young. I like, no, think he's like, 28. 28, 28. or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's so he's well versed. He looks so and, young. But he yeah. is a
1: Formula E champion. Yeah. So the Twice. I, uh, ma, ma, what I no, want I want to see just for once yeah. last year, what I want to see is how does that translate? I, mean, I think the the, the other thing with the, the Williams debut was brilliant and he was good. But obviously, a lot happened. And it, I think he was 11th until a couple of laps to go, and he jumped up to 10th and then jumped up again to 9th. Not to take it away from him, it was still a great achievement. But I, I think it'll be a, a huge shining light and a huge talking point next year of just what is the difference between Formula E champion and back of the grid Formula One driver. Like, can he translate how well he did in Formula E to like drag Williams by the scruff up the field? I don't think so. But it be interesting to see. He's been around Formula One for a long time. If you remember, he was on McLaren's Sydney Tuned show way back when because he was in McLaren's Academy when he was a kid. I'm just showing how long I've been a McLaren fan. For Sean, you had your hand up there a second ago. Any thoughts about Nick?
3: Yeah. Well, first off, just just to to clarify, a Monza. He spent something like thirty five of those laps in the points. So it was he. It was definitely. It wasn't you know, it wasn't a good tailwind that got him up into the points. He was genuinely up there. I mean, he was helped by grid penalties. That did bump him up into the top 10. And he had driven, I mean, what impressed me was he'd driven the Aston Martin on Friday. He was the first driver to drive two different cars on the same weekend since 1978, wow. uh, when Harold, when Harold ertl coincidentally also did it at Monza. But he also, Harold ertl didn't qualify. And sorry, I'm, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. Uh, pre-qualifying back then used to happen the weekend before the race. So Harold ertl didn't it didn't actually... It wasn't on the actual weekend, date-wise. It was within the race meeting. But uh, we were going back through history to try and find somebody who'd actually qualified for the race, having driven other cars. And we went to Sterling Moss and Graham Hill raced a Lotus after practising a Brabham at the 69 British Grand Prix. Anyway, we digress. Back to De Vries. Formula E doesn't translate to Formula 1. I think it's a whole different ball game. But mm. the fact that he's the F2 champion that's a much more valuable commodity. And obviously he's Mr. Versatile, the fact that everybody wants him testing the car. Well, that isn't because they thought, wouldn't it be fun if we got Nick DeVries to drive our car? That's obviously, there's some, you know, business oriented reason why people want to get DeVries in their car. So that that's a, that's a signal of intent. I think also Alfa Tari, mechanic you know the mechanics will benefit from not having to take the seat cushion out so the drivers can reach the pedals next year because they're both about four foot ten which you know that's nice and and, and actually all joking aside it does they are both very light and of course that means you can put ballast in the car you know you've got a bigger ballast selection there's um, one
1: set that i do know it will be the shortest driver pairing in formula one history isn't that true Supposedly.
3: I would Supposedly. say I, I, I don't I don't like since, to go there on that because since
1: driver heights have been measured.
3: Yes. So yeah, I'll give you that one. But yeah, there's always a chance that, you know, some some independent entrance from nineteen fifty two German Grand <laughs> Prix you know were three foot eight and four foot one and haha you know that's a that's like a gotcha stat so i don't like to i don't like to declare that as an absolute statement of fact but certainly they are very short and uh, you know they're not george russell and esteban ocon let's put it that way but uh, yeah De vries i mean De Vries is a great example of a driver it's a great example of the fact that the 20 the fact that we only have 20 seats in formula one is not enough to accommodate the number of talented drivers we have the fact that De vries mm-hmm. Has, I mean, De Rees has won everything that there is to win in his career up to now. He, could, he can't do more, you know, he's delivered the titles. So like, what else do you want the guy to do at this stage? He's driven every car under the sun, it seems. The only thing left was to finally get his break. And I thought it was great that cometh the hour, he 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 got in the points and, and you know grabbed the headlines because his talent was more than enough. And I think that was also the last nail in the coffin of Nicholas Latifi's F1 career. Yeah. Uh, the fact that like, Jeff Reese could just jump out of one car into another and instantly outpace him. There's a funny story about that because Saturday morning at Monza, I was preparing to do a a, a video presentation for, for Oracle, actually, Red Bull sponsor in Monza that evening so i was at the track at monza doing some video editing and suddenly the phone starts blowing up and it's all the same like all different people asking me all the same question sure when was the last time somebody drove two different cars on the same weekend and i was like why is everyone suddenly asking me that question what's happened and then crofty got on my whatsapp and said have you heard of in the williams you know when was the last time somebody drove two different cars on the same week i was like uh-oh and I'm in the middle of a video edit, and anyone who does video editing knows it's very time-consuming, you just really don't want to be distracted. And then I'm r- right before FB3, it's like, oh, uh-oh, everybody's looking at me. So I had to go and, uh, and unearth all this. But uh, yeah, be-all and end-all of it was De Vries. It, it writes a wrong, I think, that someone as talented as Nick De Vries had not been a Formula 1 dr- race driver and finally gets the chance. So uh, look forward to, to big things from him this year. Sophia said the curse of the rookie driver and getting two seasons. Well, if you're bloody lucky, you get two seasons because, you know, if you haven't got a handle on it by the end of the first season, we've got 20 seats and drivers like Nick DeVries look on the outside, looking in saying, where's my seat. So, you know, it's not a finishing school. You're supposed to come in and hit the ground running. So, yeah, Sonoda. I mean, I would say in defense of Sonoda, he was outpacing Gasly in qualifying fairly regularly in, this was. season. And I'm not quite sure if Gasly was Gasly's head fully in the game. Was he too busy chasing the Alpine drivers? Was, was he thinking, oh, I've already got the contract for next year, so who really cares? Was it anything like that? I don't know. But I mean, if, if De Vries is showing Sonoda the way around the racetrack next year, that's, uh, that could be curtains for Sonoda. Well, that be that's, a I fun think, headache. Think,
4: uh, sorry, Sean. I think yeah, the Nick De Vries thing really does epitomize Formula One. So Sean as you said, he's won everything you can in every race in every other category, Formula E champion, F two, and all the other ones. And then people only really took him seriously when he got in the points and the volumes in a reserve ride.
3: Yeah, you absolutely.
4: Know, yeah, they're like, like hold on, like look what he's done. Like and then so it, it just epitomizes how tough it is and how easily it forgotten. Sorry, you can be even as a talented driver, stopper, Van on, great exam, driver straight into McLaren and just not... I mean, he'll just not be looked at by anybody after what happened. And it's not really his fault. He went to McLaren at the wrong time against Alonso,
3: you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a a perfect example, the perfect yin-yang of two drivers with probably, you know, equitable levels of talent who've won everything Mm. all the way up. And then, you know, the the wind blows a certain direction on certain weekends and you get the big result and suddenly your flavour of the month. I mean, I've often said... At racetracks, when giving talks in front of guests, I said, It's amazing how drivers kind of go in and out of fashion. And I was actually, mm. I remember one time using it in particular reference to Antonio Giovinazzi when he was looking, it looks like he was going out of Alfa Romeo. And I thought, well, When he came into F1, he had a good, very good uh, junior career and so on. And now he's just, everyone got to the point where it's just sort of, eh, whatever, you know. And, you know, Nick DeVries for the longest time was, eh, whatever. And then Monza happens and suddenly he's, you know, he's, yeah, Williams,
4: uh, Williams yeah, you, wanted him Bill yeah, like, wanted him that's a lot right. looking at him You're like, fin-
3: finally you can sit with us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well we look forward
1: to, to seeing how Nick DeVries can get on in his first full season in Formula 1 bringing it on then to someone who has ended their career in Formula 1 Do you like that transition there I was proud of that one mm. of course Sebastian Vettel has retired for now Fernando Alonso claims he'll be back. Lewis claims he'll be back. I have my wild theory that Audi are coming in and they'll make a German super team exactly like Merck did with the old guy, Seb, and the young guy bringing back Nico, uh, Mick Schumacher. Um, and Mattia
3: Benotto is the team principal. Mattia
1: Benotto is the team principal, yeah. So that's my theory for 2026. But as of, as of the time of recording, so if you listen to this four years in the future, ignore this. But as of right now, Seb, Sebastian Vettel has retired from Formula One. He was the holder of many records. And Sean, you might rattle a few off for us in a second. But Sophia, try try to hold back your tears a little bit and tell us how you thought Seb got on in his final year in Formula 1.
0: I, I think there were some great chances. There was opportunities that could have been better. It's funny how his debut F1 race, he only got one point. And his last F1 race, he also got one point, which was kind of a cool kind of full circle moment. But I mean, we've seen it with the Aston this season that they had some good moments, random good moments, but Overall, especially in qualifying, like getting out in Q1 was quite a common thing that was going on for Seb. Like by minuscule of time, don't get me wrong, but then just not performing well overall. And then obviously comparing it to Stroll, both just not performing as well. I I kind of expected or would rather have hoped to, uh, to finish a little bit better this season, especially as soon as when he announced his retirement. Actually, to be fair, when he announced his retirement, it seemed like something just and switched well. the <laughs> Yeah, like There was some kind of like aha moment and it kind of did change a bit. Like Even just like the way that he was talking, the way that he was on radio and performing as well, doing quite a 180 for it, which I think, I guess like without the pressure of everything, just he was like, I'm just going to love the sake of driving and I'm just going to have a blast. And that's all you can always ask for for a driver, especially when having such an illustrious career and having some great records, great memories, great races as well. And with the multiple teams that he raced with as well. But yeah. Oh, it's so, so emotional. Like the, the sky coverage that whole weekend, I was just like in tears, no mm-hmm. makeup, no nothing. Cause I was just like crying the whole time for it. And all the tributes as well for it were definitely a, a really nice touch. I hope he's back in some capacity. I don't see him coming back as a driver, I see him coming back as an ambassador or representing the sport better over the years, given what he does outside of the motorsport racing with all his different philanthropies. But yeah, definitely an emotional one for sure.
1: Yeah, I thought it was lovely. Sky, you know, they, they changed up their... their, their, their F1, sorry, oh. changed the intro to have Seb after Mac. It was only a blink and you miss it. Well, I thought that was a lovely little touch. The the, the, the run for Seb and stuff like that where they all laughed. Were you a part of that, Sean? Did
3: you go on that run? I didn't. Actually, I left the track. I didn't know it was happening. So I went huh? back to the hotel after qualifying and unbeknownst to me, having spent all this year doing triathlon training, I missed this run that oh, everyone went and did. So that was a bit of a balls up. But I would say Having been in Abu Dhabi, the largest cheers I heard on the gra- in the grandstands on Sunday were for Vettel. You I could hear they, them on
1: TV as well.
3: Really, yeah. I mean, they they certainly weren't piped in. That was genuine, and yeah, he was. There was a lot of adulation. Uh, there was a lot of love for him, um, mm. which was kind of nice. It wasn't just like, oh, oh, you're retiring. You know, it's been great. It was. A, it felt like genuine affection from the crowd and from the other drivers, which was mm. nice. Because when Kimi retired, for instance, it just felt like, you know. People were sort of making jokes like Kimmy, will, you know, you can now have all the drink you want, you know, all that it's sort of so, stuff. So, you know, it sort we're... of
1: felt like it was only like the older fans who had been around for the absolute best of Kimmy in the early two thousands that, like, I was devastated when Kimmy retired. But again, he'd already left and come back.
3: Yeah, and I think also, you know, I, I mean, I, I said on the record, and you know, I thought Kimmy was phoning it in a little bit towards the end of his career with Vettel. You know, there, that that accusation could be levelled at Vettel as well at times, but um. It, it was it was it was it was it was genuinely touching I, I i don't usually you know usually people just cheer you know just like woo mm. like lewis hamilton max like, i did it was genuine like no no it said you know you don't have to go yet mate we, we, we want more of you you know more encore encore Seb.
1: so assuming that was his last race what records does he go out still holding what has max not taken off him yet
3: He did not take the youngest pole position record. So he still owns that one, 21 years, 73 days, Monza 2008, he still has that record. And he, he was the first teenager ever to score a point in Formula One. That also is an absolute record. No one can wow. take that, that from him. He was, when he qualified at, the, at his debut, Indianapolis 2007, he was the, it was the best qualifying by a teenage driver since 1961. So it had been 46 years since a teenager had qualified that high on the grid, and he did it first time out. So there, there, was, a, there, was, there was quite a lot of records that he had that were age records that Verstappen took from him. Um, when when Vettel came in, I mean, he was at the time he was the youngest person to lead a Grand Prix. He was the youngest uh, driver. Uh, he was the youngest driver on the podium. You know, the, the youngest was a winner lot. wasn't he? He uh, was the youngest winner, of course. Yes, <laughs> I conflated youngest pole winner, big youngest one. race winner. <laughs> yes, pretty big one. But of course, all of this got sort of wiped out by Verstappen. But the one he didn't get was the pole stat, which Vettel still holds. So he'd um, still
1: be the youngest. Three and four time champion. Would yes, you say
3: yes, that? Yes, yes, uh, on a more minor level, more obscure level. Yeah, he, he's the youngest in that category. And I did I did have to explain to the guests in Abu Dhabi. So, there's some of you, those of you who are of the of the drive to survive generation, if you will, will not be familiar with Sebastian Vettel as an all conquering driver. But, you know, for those of a younger disposition, I mean, he was absolutely in the position that Max Verstappen is now. And, you know, it just goes to prove, you know, I just imagine, I actually went. When Verstappen was winning all these races this season, I said, Imagine in a few years' time if Verstappen is in a mid to lower grid car, not being able to get in the top five. You know, imagine Max Verstappen having that now. That's where, you know, that's where Vettel was mm. at the end of the V8 era. So, you know, you never know when these things are going to dry up. And the irony of it all was that Lance Stroll had the best qualifying by Aston Martin this year, which was entirely <laughs> random. After all this focus on Sebastian Vettel, who was a very good at starting ninth on the grid, as I recall, and, uh, you know, got in Q3 last time out in his career. And yet Lance Stroll was fifth on the grid in Austin, which was entirely random and the best qualifying he'd had since being on pole at Istanbul in 2020. Lance Stroll I know we're talking about Vettel, but there was another Aston Martin out there on the racetrack and it did score points. Lance Stroll, who I've always said I thought was a lot better driver than people give him credit for and kind of carries the burden of being the poor little rich kid. And certainly I do thoroughly accept the notion that he would not be an F1 driver by now because Mm. he would have gone the Mick Schumacher way. He would have had a couple of seasons and would be like, yeah, okay, that's great. Next. But of course, he has job security that job the drivers can only dream of. And there's no point in whinging about it. You know, it's not going to change. It's just that's the, that's the status quo. So, you know, we've got to work with it. And this is on occasion capable of doing excellent performances. And, and he, has, he has a pole position. He has several podiums. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that Turkey twenty twenty drive was outstanding, and it just Great got lab. undone. It just got undone in the race. I mean, he led more than half that race. It just got undone by the un- you know the the good intentions of pitting him for new intermediates, and then it turned out the new intermediates were terrible on that racetrack. And yeah, and have... Lewis
1: Lewis was able to transfigure his into slicks. Yeah, he would
3: he wouldn't <laughs> have beaten Lewis. I mean, but he would have been second probably, and mm. it would have been literally like wow, Lance Stroll just proved he he absolutely deserves to be here. As I said. Wouldn't wouldn't be an F one driver based on what five years in Formula One, six years in Formula One, but but he is, and we and there's no point in whinging about it. He's going to be there next year, whether we think he's worth that seat or someone else is more worthy of that seat, he will have it. And he does have moments of inspiration. If he could just get. If he could just get his qualifying sorted out a little bit more, be a little bit more consistent there, not give himself such a such a, a, a large amount to do in the races, he would have a much better reputation. But uh, yeah, mm. I'm uh, again, I'm not wearing my I Heart Lance Stroll T-shirt. I just think <laughs> we should we should view these things in the cold light of day and say is, that. Is but- that-
1: is that not a Canadian flag in your background there? It is not a Canadian
3: <laughs> flag, sadly no. But but yes, there were times, there were times a season where Stroll, you know, without qualifying Vettel, we should, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a one man team, and it'll be interesting to see what happens now that he's got the most. Somebody said the most Machiavellian driver in Grand Prix history as his teammate next year.
1: Somebody did say that. That's Somebody a that's a great that. quote. We, we, we're going to have to trademark that quote, that that was officially yes, staged interesting when, the Everything
3: F1 podcast. When, when Lance Stroll sent Fernando Alonso halfway back to Austin during the US Grand Prix, it was interesting that <laughs> Fernando Alonso was strangely non-critical. I yes. wonder why. He didn't want to criticise the the son of the person who's paying him next year. A lot of money. <laughs>
1: My just finally for me on Seb, my favourite stat about Seb's final season is he ends in a green car from the Silverstone team, which is exactly where Michael Schumacher started. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good the, point. The green Jordan from 1992 became the green Aston Martin for 2022, exactly 30 years later. That yeah. that, that is a lovely circular end for me. I really like that. Stat. And
3: also, if I could add this 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 pathway of meaningless statistics. Michael Schumacher started in the green Silverstone car in 1991. And that was the last season that either a Schumacher or, a Hamilton, or Hamilton did not win a Grand Prix until yes. 2022. So there we go, folks. If you can come yeah. up with any other 1991 slash 2022 cross references. Actually, I've got one. I've got one today. I went to my primary school. I haven't been there since 1991. There we are, folks. We've done it. Done it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there for 31 years.
1: Coops, any thoughts on Seb's final season uh, or his yeah. career in general?
4: I I liked his red bill days. I love the the multi twenty one, you know, I love that I love the fact he's just like, no, I'm getting that. I'm I'm going, you know, it, every Formula One champion has that ruthlessness, that aggression, that selfishness. Everyone they all have to be selfish mm. uh, to a point. And he showed by that, uh, and I thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, he's he's done the right thing and, you know, he's still got the talent to be on the grid, but he's choosing to go. He's not reining it in like Raikkonen did for two years mm. because, well, why not? In Raikkonen's case, he just decided he was going to amble about for a few years and be out for a male and then eventually just saunter off. He, probably a year or two too late, but yeah, you know, I think it, 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 it's always interesting watching the journey of someone who comes into it, a bit like Hamilton. You know, he came into it really young and He's went through these changes, growing from the young man being that kind of really ruthless person in the Red Bull days and being quite hated and then then becoming the the guy that everybody loved. And as Sophia says, the bringing out those emotions, knowing that he's leaving and, you know, the respect that he got in the end up, you know, it, it, it is a pure kind of respect. It's not just mm. the professional respect of, oh, you're a Formula One driver, retired for Champions know, well done, it was very personal kind of, respect almost. yeah very personal and mm. you know and the the things he's did and how he's stepped out in some of the countries that have the issues with LGBT and you know he's stood there with the thing you know the, the designs in his helmet and all that you know and ended up in question time I don't think we've ever had a Formula 1 driver in question time and he and he, and he held himself well I don't watch mm. question time and i watched that <laughs> just enough to see you know and he he, he was he was you know it's It'll be interesting to see where he goes. I don't think he'll come back to the Formula One fold in a kind of capacity as a driver anymore. I think with these kids at home and the way his life is and stuff like that, I think he'll move on. Extreme E might be perfect for him with his climate kind of stuff and the very small calendar you've got. Uh,
0: He's racing in Race of Championships in Sweden in right. January with Schumacher again Schumacher. as well. mm.
4: That'd be fun. But I think there's one start that I think I might be right was, is he not the quickest debut to get a penalty?
3: He
4: came out of the pits and his very first ever start was a BMW Salva. Yeah, and it was Istanbul,
3: in, uh, yeah, 06, yeah.
4: Sped in the pit lane. So he baby. got his first ever penalty six seconds into his debut or something, which I always <laughs> thought was brilliant. I was like, ah, and yourself.
1: That's a great start. Well, we've been going quite long, but before we finish up, I want to do highs and lows. So just just one line, Coops, your high and your low of the season. Oh,
4: I think the low was probably Saudi Arabia. The Mixhumaca Smash was a quite a whoa, whoa. that's a nasty one. But the whole situation with
1: the missile strike.
4: The <laughs> missile strike, the, you know, the drivers all in there, it really it it brought the situation and where Formula One's going. Into a very sharp focus, and it brought everyone to attention. Of like, should we really be there? Mm. And it's something like again, should we? I don't mm. know. It's a very big conversation. Probably something that you know involves people a bit more intrepid than me. But it was it, it it was an uncomfortable feeling. And seeing the drivers, you know, till midnight, and Sean may be able to perform a bit more. They were there for a long time. Mm. Again, uh, I think Vettel missed that, but he was was there over a Zoom call, you know, wanting reassurances and wanting discussions and, you know, it's, it's, and it's, it brings to focus the way the world is. No country's Mm. perfect, but again, how do we change that? How do we bring things or how do we, as a Formula One community, as Formula One fans, as a business do they do it from the inside and take the money, but then do stuff there? Or do they just not go? Or how does it work? Uh, a positive, I think, I think the new regulations have worked well. Great point. I think they've brought yep. things together. and uh, what
1: Ross Brown said they would.
4: Yep. I, I mean, yes, Max Verstappen nailed it. He's disappeared. But, you know, when Lewis Hamilton was doing that, when he disappeared in the, in the Mercedes, there wasn't much else happening. But then hmm. you could jump down to them. There was always something going on to watch somewhere. Even I think the Mexican Grand Prix was probably one of the more poor ones. I think, but you still had racing in Mexico. I think the hmm. only race that I can remember that was really poor, pretty much all the way through, was Miami. It just Miami. The track didn't work. Whether they're going to change that, I don't know. But there's probably a matter too. There's probably more I would like to, but I don't want to go on too much.
1: Sophia, what about your high and low of the season?
0: My low, I think, is overall the race director calls. I
2: think mm.
0: take Monaco, take Suzuka, take some of the ones specifically as well, like with Kevin Magnusson having to come in for damage, minor damage, but then you have Yuki just gaffe tape his wing and yeah, like and so Perez,
1: it's fine that his just falls it, off and it could yeah. hit someone. Yeah. And
0: then also like Alonso's merit, like some of the calls and some of the decisions and the penalties and not penalties and everything for that. I think that's probably the lowest, obviously getting rid of one race director and now only having the one, I think is probably the great decision that they have done. However, it should never have had the two because you have people, butting heads, take Monaco for example, just n- nothing going on. Like it just was so inconsistent for everything. I think my highest base in Mr. Coops, I, I would say how many battles that we've had, how many close battles, especially if- with drivers that you would never expect like take mick and uh lewis battling out a few times in austria austria i think yeah some of these races as well like alonzo with vettel as well like in so
1: japan we- that was awesome
0: <laughs> like so many of these races we had so many like if you were to tell me that like next season like if you told me like at the end of last season that this season we'll see mick and lewis battling out like and so many other good battles. I think that's probably one of the highest. And there's always something to watch as well. F1, even F2 as well. I've been big now into the F2 and F3. That's also been kind of doing quite well and the progression into F1 as well.
1: Very good. Sean, then you've obviously probably been at a lot of the races this year. What are your highs and lows of the 2022 season?
3: Well, before I get to my own highs and lows, I just want to provide a sort of first-person account of what happened in Jeddah. That would be great, yeah. Um, when, when the missile strike, the Houthi rebels struck the refinery near the track. I, I actually was not at the track when that happened. I was at the hotel, which was actually very close to the track, and I didn't know it had happened until somebody posted a picture of the smoke, and I literally went outside looked around. Was, oh, bloody hell, look at that. I can say hand on heart, I never felt threatened. And the reason why is, and I I I always, I brought this up quite a bit, you know, I grew up at a time when the IRA had a mainline bombing campaign in Great Britain, and we always knew, look, if terrorists want to kill you, they won't leave their business card, okay? They'll knock on the front door. So I, I my attitude was somewhat laissez-faire, and that, like, look, if they were aiming a missile at us, they'd have hit us the first time. They wouldn't have given us a chance to get out. So I never felt... I honestly never felt threatened. And even though I was actually closer to the missile strike than was the racetrack itself. So I was never bothered about that. And when it comes to the human rights issues of, of, of Saudi and so on, well, I always say, well, look, I live in America. We raced in Texas and in Florida, where they're trying to systematically reduce the rights of women to you know control their own bodies. So who are we to tell them which way is up when we can't even get our own house in order? Anyway, on a brighter note, the, the high points and the low points of the year. Well, the low point, Suzuka. Because... Mm-hmm. Gasly could have been killed, and you know the fact that we had an exact rerun of the Bianchi accident, but without the the accident, it was just sheer luck that we didn't have it again. That was unacceptable, and, and obviously F one and the FIA know that that was unacceptable. and And then also the farcical way in which Verstappen was declared champion. None of us knew, or yeah. we were, well, that's actually not true. Some of us knew. So for instance, I've spoken to the of the Formula One camera operators who were well aware that that battle that Perez and Leclerc were having was to determine the outcome of whether or not Verstappen was going to clinch the world championship or not, which none of us, the broadcasters, had been informed. So half, some people knew, some people didn't know. The team principals, a lot of them, most of them didn't know. I know this because, you know, actually in the same, the same time I interviewed Otmar Safnau, one of the questions I asked him was, did you know that it was going to be a four points race? And he said, no, we had no idea. We found out at the same time as everybody else. So that was calamitous and, and really should not, You know, that made Formula very, very unprofessional, both in terms of safety and in terms of just simply who's won what, you know, that's Mm. the most simple thing. So the sport kind of dropped the ball there. The high point for me, there can only be one high point, and that was Silverstone. That was a sensational race. And highlighted again by Lewis Hamilton. I don't know if you've noticed. I'm wearing my I heart Lewis shirt for this. but <laughs> The fact that we didn't think Lewis Hamilton was competitive and and was un, he was unexpectedly the best car on the track. But you know he was held up a bit early on in the race, and you know it, there was a period where I thought he's going to win this. He's mm. actually going to a, a, after the season they've had, he's going to pull out a win. And then he didn't. And then the safety car And then there's that massive battle between Leclerc, Perez, Hamilton, and, and that iconic piece of, of commentary. Through goes Hamilton, all that stuff. I was there. That cheer that you hear in the broadcast was genuine. I've never heard a, a, a race a racetrack so loud. It was like a it was like a, a goal being scored in football. I, I, it was unbelievable. Just for those visceral twenty seconds before Hamilton found his way back behind them again. Some... <laughs> but it was an incredibly exciting race, and it was just a, it was just one of those days where, where everything felt good. You know, Vettel went around the racetrack in a, uh, Nigel Mansell's Williams Renault beforehand on the renewable fuels that we'll be using in twenty twenty six, and it was just a day where, where it's like, yeah, we all went home happy that day. It was a good like- race.
1: Lando you know. Norris smacked Daniel Ricciardo in the face with a yeah, space yeah. hopper. Yeah, exactly.
3: It saved, saved Zach Brown doing it to him later in the season. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was a, it was a weekend where everybody went home pretty happy. Even you know even Lewis Hamilton fans who maybe thought oh he might have won but he didn't they, they at least were treated to an extremely entertaining race and mm. and you know a bit of a shake up with Carlos Sainz winning the race. So it was it was that was one of those days where I was like that was that was a good day's work today. I, I would completely agree. That was absolutely one of my highlights of the whole season. That's one of the best races
1: I've watched in years. I said uh, at the
3: time, by the way, not to interrupt, I said at the time on Twitter, I said, I've seen more than 600 of these things. That might've been the best one. Definitely um, up there. That, you know, as a snap judgment, that that's got to go in the top 10 at least yeah. for me canada um, 2011 is still number one i don't think well, anything will ever yeah, touch that the thing is is that with that race of course you've got the rain and the red flags and yeah. all that stuff with silverstone, first. <laughs> with silverstone genuinely apart from there was a safety car you know the rest of it was just racing and yeah. just tactics and everything i just thought it, that was a race that had everything the only thing it missed the only thing it was missing like canada 2011 had was a pass on the last lap yeah. if it had had that We we were to run the table on everything you could have in a Grand Prix. We had a car go out, go out of the ballpark and end up in the car park. We had Hamilton nearly win it, but not a Ferrari winning it. Somebody winning the first Grand Prix, you know, somebody overtake somebody and then re-overtake somebody. The crowd goes wild. Crowd stops going wild, you know, iconic commentary. The lot, we had all of it. It was brilliant.
1: I thought thought it was a great kind of go into a highlight reel of how good the regulations were, as Coop said, you know, the regulations did exactly what they were supposed to. They gave us close racing in high speed corners. Silverstone, despite being a big wide track because of the Maggots and Beckett's complex, is not typically brilliant for overtakes because the big long straight with DRS is right after the rapidly high speed corners where everybody drops half a second, a second behind the curse in front. I thought it was absolutely brilliant, brilliant race. A couple of other highlights from the rest of the team who shared with us Max and Leclerc in Bahrain like Jewel in the Desert part two it was brilliant Max and Leclerc in Saudi the stupid mind games for DRS that was hilarious Max breaking all of his records the Clerk's big ear deafening no scream in France I can still hear it in my ears Alonso and Hamilton's mini feud in Belgium comes from Evan that was if remember that the Perez's win in Monaco Sev's last race my personal highlight was the two the two new winners George and Carlos the two, having two new winners in Formula 1 is brilliant especially George I was absolutely delighted about that one and yeah go on
3: also, we had four new pulsators as the most in the season since 1979. Um, Damn that
0: was my so... question to try to stump you before.
3: <laughs> oh, right, sorry, sorry. Uh, the, <laughs> my, be uh, my, doing. <laughs> my guess is 1979, am I right? <laughs> yeah, so there's that. And also, just further to your point, Sean, about the new regulations, a lot of people thought that they were supposed to close the field up. Well, I think that's more the financial regulations. Actually, mm-hmm. tech regs were just to, uh, allow them to physically run closer. Race. But there was also a knock-on, of, even though the first year of new regulations usually sees the field spread out slightly more at Zandvoort the spread in, in terms of percentage between the fastest car and the slowest car on absolute lap time across the weekend was only 1.92 percent now that's the smallest spread front to back that we've had at any Grand Prix in the hybrid era so that's wow that's an unexpected side effect that we actually it was very very close and you can only imagine with a few years of consolidated rules plus the financial regulations helping out the teams at the back Hopefully that will continue to concertina up. It may mm. seem that Red Bull kind of ran away with it. Well, of course, in in terms of the championship, they did. But it, actually, the field was very close together. It was still, those same three got three teams up at the front. Of course, running the show. But Formula One's moving in the right direction with that, and and there's every reason for optimism in the future that we could genuine the genuine thought that you know a Williams or a Haas get on the podium with the way the regulations are set up for the next few years is very, very, very encouraging. That is a
1: brilliant stat. It's only a shame that Zandvoort was such a rubbish race. There. Win, win, <laughs> when win some, some lose some. some. Exactly. Yes, I can
3: tell you that. And also anyone who went to Zandvoort, that particular smell of recycled Heineken, let's call yeah, it, that a... you smell uh, along the seafront when you go, when you walk down there before and after the day's activities, which we have renamed Oh de Zandvoort, now available at a perfume <laughs> store near you in 2022. Oh i hope not. Can uh, I just
4: we- uh, Can I just jump in quickly? I just remembered uh, a personal highlight for me this year was actually being at a race. I actually got to go to Silverstone. Now, I never got to see the race because it sold out, but I managed to take my son and my partner along and we got there Friday, Saturday. So for the first time ever, in my forty years, and my God knows how many years I've watched Formula One, I was actually at a race and watched them driving, and you know, and my son who's twelve spent all my money and more. <laughs> uh,
3: but, how, but how was it? How, how did it compare with what you thought it was going to be? My, my
4: my idea in my head it was away by the time I walked in the gate. Straight away it was, it was just it's just different. Just, mm. It's like the Friday we got to be in the grandstands. We saw the cars go round. We we got to here and there. Just everything. Just spending two or three days, just immersed in Formula One, and my son did didn't know what to do with himself. was <laughs> a car, and then we were out yeah. a bit where we were able to watch the qualifying, and Verstappen spun right in front of us. Which of course that's my son's driver, so he was like, oh, and we we're like, and they were all cheering, and he's got mm-hmm. his Verstappen stuff on. Yeah, it was uh, it was an experience. We Unfortunately can't have-
3: you can't have a better crowd than Silverstone. Silverstone's the most raucous and involved, you know, crowd. Oh,
4: yeah, they're, they're cheering and shouting. And then there was some random guy who saw my son we were was staffing stuff on, and he was shaking hands with him. That's ah, a good position, son, shaking hands with him. And, of course, I was in a McLaren top, and we were down in, in Q1, I think, at that point. So, but yeah, it's a shame that the way the prices have went, we couldn't manage it next year. But, you know, I will we'll figure something out, and I'll take him back. He's getting more and more into it, so I think, if I take him, maybe not the next year, the year after, the fact he's properly getting into it and he, he has more conversations with me. He even said to me he was staying with us in it was Japan. He actually told me, wake me up so I can come no, down great. and watch the race. And then he <laughs> fell back asleep because we had to wait for two or three hours for the race to start. That's <laughs> exactly what I did as know, well, in fairness. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting on the laptop messing around and I'm looking over and he's gone and I woke him up and it started again. Uh, but yeah. That, that,
2: there you go. Per,
4: for a personal thing as a dad and you know I never had it was me in my mm. household when I was younger that was Formula 1 fan it was me that decided them on I wanted to watch this and woke up and you know to have the, my boy being like I'm a Verstappen fan and this is what I've heard about Formula 1 and he'll send me stuff that he's seen online and well oh, what about this and what about that and, and then he, he'll start he tries to stump me on certain wee things and he does eventually catch me out and then he, waited, then he tried to say, if you could amalgamate different drivers to turn them into your number one driver, who would that be? And I went, Erton Senna. And he
3: went, and who else? Erton Senna. Senna. <laughs> and he went, oh, okay. Can, can, I, can, I, can I just end with a humble brag? Okay. I've got a brilliant one here, because I've been in Monaco a lot lately, and I was showing a friend of mine around the other day who'd never been and I was showing them. If those of you who've been to Monaco will know that up on the Royal Palace, what they call the Rocher locally, which is the old town Monte Carlo or old town Monaco, there's a lot of souvenir stores. You get postcards and all that stuff. But there's also a post office. And I was in the post office, and I realised that they've got a, they've got Formula One stamps in the post office, which are legal. You can send posts, You can actually send posts with Formula One cars on them. And one of them was Ayrton Senna. They had a lot of Senna winning in Monaco, and I went outside and literally like five seconds after admiring these stamps and wondering what do I want to buy them or not, I went outside. There was a souvenir store outside, and they had postcards set up, and one of them was Alan Prost, and I thought, wouldn't it be brilliant if I sent someone an Alan Prost <laughs> postcard with it an Senna stamp? I need I need to get some friends who would find that funny. Wouldn't it be I mean, brilliant? I mean, I mean, but I mean- I find that. that funny. Yeah, send it to us. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> well, that 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 is a brilliant anecdote to end on. I was going to say my my kind of low point of the year is Miami, but I already did a full article on our website ranting about that. I thought that was an absolute joke, but I won't bring the mood down. One final thing I want to end on with, with yourself, Sean. Now, usually we do this at the start of the season with our guests, but we put Ben Hunt on the spot a couple of weeks ago because it's now the end of the season. If you had five euro or five pounds right now. Who are you putting on to win the 2023
3: Formula One World Championship? Well, Max Verstappen, obviously, because, you know, dynasties tend to reign. But I would say that no one knows what's going to happen next year. We're In the second year of this rules package, we're, we're going to be in the, the second proper year of the financial regulations. Mm. And, and that's, that's the real thing. You know, the fact that they've been fined this money, that money might not hurt them so much, but the restriction on tunnel time, we don't know how that's going to affect them. Um, And it might be the, you know, six months from now when they haven't won a Grand Prix, we might all go, "Hmm, that was a very good penalty, you know, or conversely, they might've won every race. And we say that was no penalty at all. We just don't know. So I, I would say, based on how things tend to go, we've seen a long period where, you know Schumacher won everything, and then we had Alonso win everything before he inexplicably jumped ship from the, t- the drivers, the team he was winning the world championship for, to join a team that hadn't won a race in 2006. Anyway, and then we had the Vettel era, then we have the Hamilton era, and now we're in the Verstappen era. Logically, it would be Verstappen would start Verstappen- as the favourite. So, it not unfortunately, not a very brave bet. I would love, I would love to stick 100 quid on Nico Hulkenberg to win the world championship, but you know <laughs> that might be a little bit more in the realms of fantasy. I would love to know what the uh, what the odds are for Nico Hulkenberg to
1: win the championship next year, but we will come back to you on November 26th, 2023, after next year's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix to see if you were right or not. Although knowing Max and Red Bull would probably be a bit sooner than that if he's going to oh, win will be again.
3: joining me from my yacht in Barbados after <laughs> yeah. I've won. Nico Hulkenberg's won <laughs> the world <laughs> championship and I'll be sitting there, yeah.
1: To be fair, fair, just to go 100 quid on him getting a podium, the odds on that will be just as high. Absolutely. Yeah. And
3: it'll it'll come in a sprint race, and I'll have to have an argument with my. It will be, and it won't count.
1: Right, we will leave it at that. As a very quick roundup again, obviously the 2022 season was won by Red Bull with 759 points. Ferrari were second, Mercedes were third. Max Verstappen absolutely walked away with the world championship by 454 points to the 308 and Perez's 305. I'm not going to list all 22 drivers, but the 22nd was Nico Hülkenberg. Thank you very, very much for joining us for this wrap-up and for all of our reviews and previews and all of our episodes this season. We do have a few more things to come over the winter period and over the off period, one that is particularly exciting that Coops and I are extremely excited about, but I won't tell you about just yet. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Do stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening. Check us out on all socials. Thanks very much, Coops, for joining me this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophia. Thanks. And thank you to our very special guest this weekend, Sean Kelly, the stat man for Formula One. Thanks again for coming along. Thank you very much for inviting me. Always a pleasure. We are Everything F1 and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.